hard to believe it's already October. 2020 has been a strange year. And for a lot of us, 2020 has been a challenging year. And I'm here to help you out just in time for the holidays. Halloween is right around the corner, plus Thanksgiving, Christmas. Before you know it, it'll be 2021. Well, we're probably all really looking forward to that. But the holidays can be a very stressful time for families who maybe you're having to stretch that budget a little further. And with all the extra wrinkles and expenses this year, this could be the most challenging holiday season ever for a lot of families. And that's where I think SaveWithConrad.com can help you out. I hope so, at least. We've routinely helped our podcast listeners save five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. And you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. If you've unfortunately racked up a bunch of debt and now you find yourself feeling stuck making minimum payments, SaveWithConrad.com can help you. First of all, we're going to show you how to get out of debt faster at a much better interest rate and do it with cheaper monthly payments. Here's how we do this. First of all, we're going to get you a better deal on your mortgage. Most Americans have an interest rate in the fours, fives, or sixes, but we're routinely helping our podcast listeners get interest rates in the twos and threes. And I've been doing mortgages for 19 years. I've never been able to offer rates in the twos, but I'm doing it every day now. And I'd love to run the numbers for you and show you how much you can save by taking advantage of these historic rates while we've still got them. We've all got this election looming. Nobody knows exactly what that's going to do to rates, but I know we've got the best rates we've ever had right now. But the time to act is now before it's too late. And how's this for starters? No house payments for two months. You won't have to make your November or your December payment. You're done until next year. Wouldn't that be nice? Let's go ahead and finish up 2020 with no house payments. I mean, let's face it. Your house payments, your single biggest bill, right? Now imagine if you got to pocket two months of that, that's going to be the cash infusion you need just in time for the holidays. And oh yeah, don't put Christmas on a credit card. We can show you how to get rid of all that credit card debt once and for all. So by the time 2021 rolls around, you've got a much better interest rate. You've got a much better mortgage. You've got no credit card debt, and it really is the clean slate. Maybe you've been looking for Let's make it happen for you right now. Get a quick quote for free at SaveWithConrad.com. We're licensed in more than 40 states. You don't need perfect credit and you don't need money out of your pocket to see if we can save you some cash. So what have you got to lose? Two house payments, a lot of stress, unnecessary interest. You've got a lot to lose, but only if you hurry right now to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. It's SaveWithConrad.com. Okay, stop what you're doing. Listen very, very carefully. The most hated jeweler in America is excited to introduce you to someone very special. Oh, she's beautiful, classy. She's brilliant. She will dazzle you. People just can't stop staring at her. Meet Krista. And she's easy. What? Krista is Steven Singer's most loved engagement ring, and it takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye flawless, near colorless, high quality, round, brilliant cut diamond, expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting that will withstand the test of time. Krista is available. 
She's ready for love, and she's ready to meet you. Steven Singer isn't in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. This magnificent full one-carat round brilliant diamond is only $3,198. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Plus, free shipping, and get this, 12 months interest-free financing. Steven's showroom is open by appointment only, or you can go to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista Ready for Love engagement ring. Steven Singer Jewelers. Real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm adjusting. I, I was up in the mountains uh, for almost a week, camping out, chasing some elk around. Had a great time. Froze my ass off. But now I'm back down here to civilization, as it were. Coming to you from the doghouse. Recording studios for 83 weeks, at least my half of it. I'm pretty excited about today's show, man. This is, uh, I don't know. It's pretty topical because we're talking Halloween havoc and WWE has just announced that they're going to bring back their own Halloween havoc for the NXT brand. And one of the reasons I enjoyed this show in particular that we're covering today, Halloween havoc 92 was the silly spin the wheel, make the deal segment. And, uh, it's funny. We've got a hallows Eve havoc celebration on adfreeshows.com. That's coming up here at the end of the month that we had been planning for a long time. We've got lots of fun prizes. I know you're going to be with us and Tony Schiavone is going to be with us and we're probably going to have a special guest or two. And it's a little interactive zoom thing, costume party. Since Halloween's a little different this year for everybody, we're going to make the best of it. And unbelievably for more than two months, we have been working on a spin the wheel, make the deal concept for that program. And now NXT is doing it on TV. Can you believe that they're bringing back Halloween havoc and even doing the old spin the wheel, make the deal thing in 2020? Yeah, I think it's great. You know, wrestling fans have a long memory. They love the legacy and nostalgia and history. And, and I think the fact that WWE is bringing back Halloween havoc in whatever version, uh, is number one, I think it's paying homage to a great pay-per-view series. Halloween havoc really went on to become at least in my opinion, one of the more important pay-per-views of the year for WCW. So I, I think it's great, and hopefully uh, it'll be a tradition that continues long into the future. Well, I'm glad it's back, too. You know, I think a lot of wrestling fans just assumed when the WWF purchased WCW, gosh, nearly 20 years ago now, I can't believe it's the 20-year anniversary next year, that they would have brought over Starcade and Halloween Havoc and Clash of the Champions and great American bash. And of course we saw some of those things along the way, but Halloween havoc felt like the last holdout. I'm glad it's happening. I, uh, I love the brand as they say. I do too. And you know, historically, at least based on what we hear second and third hand and to a little bit, to a, to a little bit of a degree, you know, my own experience for the brief period of time I was in WWE, there was a tendency to, not want to really acknowledge uh, history of, of other brands. You know, ECW was a bit of an exception, but I think people forget that Vince McMahon had a financial investment in ECW from the very be not the beginning necessarily, but early on in the you know ECW's 
existence. WCW is a little bit different. You know, we were real competitors and there was real animosity and there was, you know, a, a real feeling of us versus them with regard to WCW and WWF or WWE. Uh, so I, I think the tendency to want to embrace some of WCW's legacy is, it's just not something that happens very naturally or comfortably within WWE. So, and that's just another reason why I think it's so great that it's happening. But uh, WCW's Halloween Havoc, I think, was a great pay-per-view to to bring back to life. I'm excited it's back, and I'm excited to talk about this one with you. Of course, we're going back to 1992. Uh, the original concept for our main event is spin the wheel, make the deal. This is the era where we're doing some... Uh, well, interesting, like vignettes and little videos and montages to build a story. And there's some silly ones here, but this is an interesting time for WCW. And this is even a show that we're covering today, Eric, that's before you're like in power. I know you're still with the company. I think you came in in 91, but you're not in the big seat just yet. You saw this show for the first time in nearly 20 years. What was your overall impression when you first turn this on. I mean, did it take you back to where you were thinking at the time? I mean, it's probably not, it's a little different. I'm sure to watch a show when you weren't in charge, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about the string of successes that WCW had, and then we've covered some of the missteps, but this is when you're still sort of in the background. Do you look back at this time in your WCW career fondly or not so much? It's a mixed bag. You know, there's in many respects, I look back on it very finally because it was a it was a big transition in my life you know 18 months before this or less actually um you know Lori and i were sitting in minnesota and trying to figure out how to put propane in our propane tank to heat our house and how to feed our kids and watching our cars being hauled out of the driveway and repossessed and you know bouncing checks to to to, to buy things for the kids and it was a tough time and making that transition to WCW was a lifesaver from a financial point of view and a career point of view, obviously for me. And this was still the early phases of that. So I was, I had only been with the company by this time, you know, we're looking at late October 92. I'd really been with the company for barely over a year at this point. And I was still, you know, I was still the C-Squad announcer. In fact, I wasn't even on this show, um, which surprised me a little bit. Um, while I was employed by WCW, I, I wasn't at this pay-per-view. So my feelings are, it's a mixed bag. Um, I was still so grateful to, to, to be getting a paycheck every two weeks, number one, and being able to take care of my family. And at the same time, watching Bill Watts's vision of what he thought WCW should be was demoralizing for a lot of people. The locker room was not a happy place to be uh, for a lot of different reasons and on different levels. Bill Watts was a bully. He treated people with, well, by today's standards, he wouldn't have lasted five minutes in a corporate environment. But even in 92, um, Bill Watts was operating in a way that, you know, might have worked okay for a small privately held company in the Mid-South back in the seventies, but his approach to people and management and business was even by 1992 standards, way, way out of line. And it was a bad time. I was actually looking 
and, and beginning to consider finding another place to work. I was, you know, looking at develop, I was develop actually at this point, I was actually developing a, a, a television show, the first one I ever developed and was looking for my way out of WCW because it was just such a miserable place to be. So it was a mixed bag. I was very, you know, grateful for the financial cover that WCW provided and support that it provided me and my family. But at the same time, it was a pretty miserable place to be. And I was quite disappointed. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a weird time, not just in the WWF everywhere for wrestling though. And it's just so fascinating because you and I've talked about this, I think off air before that in this era, you were grateful to have the gig, but at the same time, maybe working on an exit strategy. Hey, let's get out of this freaking business. How do you think your life would have been? I mean, your life would have been a lot different had something like that taken off and you sort of bowed out before Watts was out of power and you had an opportunity to move up, right? Yeah, I'm not sure I understand that question um, or the context of it. Maybe run that by me again. It's early. I've only got about a half a cup of coffee in me, so be kind and be slow. Well, I mean, (laughs) I, I know there's a lot of our listeners who think that you've sort of lived and died by professional wrestling and uh, certainly professional wrestling has made you, um, I don't know, more of a household name than maybe some of your other ventures, but, but you really sort of carved out your own niche as a, as a TV guy. And I'm just wondering how much differently your life would have looked like had you tagged out here and, and found another, you know, something, some major success outside of wrestling. And you move on from wrestling before you ever get the big seat next year. Yeah, it's, I, I think about things like that about once or maybe twice a year. And I think about them for about 30 seconds and I let it go because it, yeah, it's, it's kind of a waste of energy. You know, who knows? I could have, you know, made my big move out to LA and, and went on to become, you know, a, a very successful independent television producer. I could have moved out to LA and fallen flat on my ass. You, you know, one never knows. Um, I like to think that I would have found a way to succeed. I usually have throughout my career and throughout my life, uh, no matter how tough times have been, I've always been pretty secure in my ability to pull myself out of it and do whatever I needed to do to take it to the next level and, and take on a new frontier if, if need be. Um, but I, I don't think about it too much. You know, I, I, I just don't just, it's like thinking about the past and regretting certain things or living in the world of hypotheticals. What ifs I just, I don't think about that kind of stuff too much. It's no surprise that current events might be contributing to more stress and sleep deprivation, but ebb cool drift can help. If you have trouble falling asleep or maybe when you wake up, you feel like you hardly slept. That's why we're using ebb cool drift at my house. And here's the thing. Imagine what you can take on in the morning after a restful night of sleep, not just regular restorative sleep. Whether you're seeking a natural solution to a long-term battle with sleeplessness, or you're looking for small improvements, you can operate at your peak. It's time to do what I'm doing. Let's try the new Ebb Cool Drift Sleep System. The Ebb Cool Drift Sleep System provides a cooling, calming sensation to the forehead throughout a personalized algorithm so that a precise temperature is maintained. It's designed to counteract the way the mind and body react to stressful situations, helping quiet your racing mind. And listen, we all know this, right? Like, how many times have you, at growing up, flipped a pillow you wanted to be cooler than the other side of the pillow, right? That's the old ESPN cliche. I was doing that all the time because I felt like I slept better when it was cool. This made a ton of sense to me. 
Actually, Ebb Cool Drift has been clinically validated and backed by decades of research. Users are reporting improved sleep quality by 90%. The new Ebb Cool Drift Versa is a lightweight and portable sleep system designed to be incredibly versatile to fit your lifestyle, calming your racing mind anywhere you need. And with its rechargeable battery, it makes it easy to use. Whether it's before bed to wind down in other rooms of your house or while you sleep. I tried the Ebb Cool Drift because I was having trouble actually falling asleep. I found myself thinking about all I had to tackle the next day, what all happened this day, how do I fix it tomorrow, whatever. And uh, there's a little tossing and turning and flipping those pillows. Not anymore. It's changed my sleep and it will yours too. If you're really interesting in leveling up your performance, waking up feeling refreshed, and having a full productive day, that's really important to you it's important that you try this and just for our listeners you can save $25 off your order by going to tryeb.com forward slash 83 weeks use our promo code 83 weeks at checkout that's $25 off your order and you can try it risk-free for 60 nights that's t-r-y-e-b-b.com forward slash 83 weeks that's tryeb.com forward slash 83 weeks and use the promo code 83 weeks to save 25 bucks today. That's tryeb.com forward slash 83 weeks. Let's get going on the show. 1992. Uh, this one went down October 25th from the Philadelphia civic center. There's roughly 7,000 fans in attendance and believe it or not, this show gets a 0.95 buy rate, which is more than double what beach blast or great American bash earlier in this year did. It's really an unusually high buy rate so much so that WCW doesn't beat this number until bash at the beach 94, which we know is headlined by Hulk Hogan taking on the nature boy, Ric Flair. And what a special event that was. We've done a whole episode on it. Check it out in our archives over at 83weeks.com. But I don't know, man, that sort of put me on my heels a little bit to hear this was the biggest buy rate until that show. Yeah, that is a little strange because television ratings were not indicative of any kind of, you know, big success for this pay-per-view. I think for the most part, ratings were holding steady, perhaps maybe had increased a little bit, but there was no, no real indication that this was going to be a barn burner. Um, so I think everybody was surprised, pleasantly surprised, but surprised. Well, what's weird too, is this is the fourth Halloween havoc Halloween havoc 91. I guess, uh, you could say technically the main event was Lex Luger and Ron Simmons for the two out of three falls world title match. But in my mind, most notable thing that happened in 91 was the silly chamber of horrors match, which is just goofy, but we're back here in 92 with kind of another goofy gimmick, but we didn't announce that it's going to be a coal miners glove match. We announced it could be anything and it's sting on top with Jake Roberts and Jake Roberts, of course, was a heritage star during the heyday of the WWF and their sort of golden era. Now he's with WCW and he's a bad guy taking on, I don't know, the WCW answer to Hulk Hogan and sting. So I guess, I don't know. It's, it, is it, is it the name Jake Roberts? And it is something different for WCW. Do you think that had fans interest peaked or is it the concept of, man, this could be any kind of match. Did that sort of, uh, flexibility create some curiosity? Do you think might've been a combination of the two, you know, it's hard to say looking back this far back, um, 
what was the impetus behind the success of this pay-per-view? Very well could have been, you know, Jake Roberts. Jake had a very high profile in WWF before coming over to WCW. He was a legitimate big star. There might have been, you know, real curiosity to see what would happen, you know, with Jake and WCW. Uh, it could have been the spin the wheel, make the deal concept. But I, I think it's fair to say it was the a combination of the two. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure which one would have weighed more heavily. Well, whatever it was, uh, it killed the town for WCW. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, I know a lot of people are going to say, well, how can you say that? Well, we just explained that this is the highest buy rate until July of 1994. And fans are going to not love the show when it came to the readers of the wrestling observer, 84% gave this show a thumbs down. And I would have to agree. This is a thumbs down show. At least for me, I watched it back this week for the first time in forever. And well, it doesn't age. Well, it wasn't good then either though. 84% thumbs down. Eric, would you have called this a thumbs down show watching it back? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I, even watching it this morning, I was, you know, anticipating what some of the questions might be. And, you know, when I, when I sit back and when I watched the show and I just finished watching it about 20 minutes ago, so it's fresh in my mind. Um, when I watched the show this morning to prepare for this podcast, the, the, the main takeaway I, I had was, wow, this was really a transitional pay-per-view because a lot of the ideas that Bill Watts felt strongly about, for example, um, taking the pads away from the, off the floor, you know, around the ring, discouraging, you know, over the top rope moves. And I understand the psychology behind it. And I don't necessarily disagree with the psychology behind it, but it was almost too much too soon. And the emphasis on more technical type of wrestling. And I think we'll see that in the Brian Pillman, uh, Ricky steamboat match, for example, the finish of that match was just so bad. And, and the expectations, I guess that's what, that was another thing. The, the expectations I had going into this, you know, when I looked at the sheet go, wow, we're going to Brian Pillman and Ricky Steamboat, that's going to be fun to watch. And it wasn't, it was a real letdown. Um, and I think both of the competitors, you know, Ricky's obviously still with us. I'd like to ask him how he feels about it or felt about it, you know, when I see him next. But to me, it had to be a letdown for those two performers because Bill's Watts's um, vision was, you know, technical wrestling, you know, throwback to the 70s, early 80s type of wrestling. And it was just boring to watch the, 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 finishes in this show. I mean, there were three finishes out of however many, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven matches. I guess I got here from reading this, right. Um, three of them were kind of kabuki ish and, and left me kind of going, why would they do that? And, and if I felt that way, I'm, I'm sure most of the people watching did as well. So I think between taking away a lot of the, what was then, you know, high flying action by today's standards, it wouldn't even register, but by taking away so much of the more dynamic aspects of wrestling presentation that I think the, the audience had become pretty accustomed to, particularly with guys like, you know, Ricky Steamboat and, and in particular, Brian Pillman, and then to watch a match that's kind of a ground and pound version of uh, a wrestling's, you know, professional wrestling's version of ground and pound. I just think it, it was boring. It was hard to watch. It was, it was going back. 
You know, we often hear people like me or you or others who have podcasts who have been in the wrestling business for a few minutes, you know, harken back to the good old days when wrestling was wrestling. And, and I hear that I've been hearing that since the second day that I broke into the business working for Vern in 1987. That's all I've ever heard from older guys was how wrestling was so much better back in the day. They, they just can't let go of what they believe good wrestling was. And that still exists today. We still hear a lot of that conversation today. Um, but it was, like I said, it was, it was, it was going backwards and I'm a firm believer in anything in life, no matter what you're doing, whether it's a relationship, a job, a hobby, whatever it is, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. And when you decide consciously to not only not move forward, but to intentionally embrace the idea of going back to whatever it is, um, you're more than likely just entertaining yourself and humoring yourself and, and holding on to a vision that isn't going to work. And this was a perfect example. This show was a perfect example of that. There was just, it was, it was a really bad throwback to the eighties. In my opinion, the matches themselves were boring to watch. The finishes were just God awful, which was, I guess, a tradition in WCW to have, including under my watch. I'm not being critical here of, of anybody else. I'm, I'll take that criticism and apply it to myself just as, just as vociferously. Um, finishes were never a, a strong suit in, in the WCW creative culture. And this match or this pay-per-view in particular, I think was, it, it was glaringly apparent. Yeah. It's not the best time, not just here, but anywhere. Now let's talk about some news and notes heading into this show. There's more evidence of an interest decline, uh, amongst all wrestling fans because the WWF has their lowest rated weekend in history where primetime does a 1.7 rating, which tied its all time non-holiday low. You would think that this would be a big rating because they're fresh off of Bret Hart beating Ric Flair for the world title, but that hasn't necessarily changed anything yet. They are trying to uh, beef up their television program with some more competitive matches on Monday night, raw less enhancement matches. And I think a lot of the strategy here is because, well, Monday night football's back and that's going to be competition. Did you view Monday night football as major competition for nitro? Not really. I mean, no, we're talking years later, four, years, four years later, of course, right. you know, back in 1992, I wasn't really, I didn't concern myself with radio. I mean, I was aware of the ratings because people would talk about them and we keep in mind in WCW, you know, we were just off of Jim heard there was constant chatter within Turner broadcasting of Turner broadcasting, pulling the plug on WCW for a variety of reasons, most of them financial. There were so many, and I've talked about this so many times before, you know, it's just ad nauseum that I'm, I'm not going to go into it again, but suffice to say that there were a lot of people at the very high executive levels around Ted Turner that were working hard to convince Ted just to divest Turner of WCW. They didn't want it. They didn't want it when Ted launched it. And because it was such a financial black hole, it, it only added fuel to that fire so there was a constant conversation about buy rates, revenues, ratings, 
a lot of that I was hearing second and third hand because I was still the C-string announcer. Um, so I, while I was aware, I didn't think about it too much. Now, fast forward four years with Nitro, um, sure, you know, especially knowing that we were on Monday night. Um, Monday night football is definitely uh, was and probably still is. Not probably, and still is a, a, a big factor when it comes to television ratings on Monday night. Because you look at you know much of the same demo, males eighteen to forty nine. That's always been the target. You know, although everybody kind of thinks that this is something new, it's not. But males, and especially eighteen to forty nine year old males, was always the target. And so much of that audience, eighteen to forty nine year old males, once football started, moved over. And it was up to us with Nitro, at least, to try to find ways to hold on to as many viewers as we could get and possibly grow the audience during Monday night. And and we employed a lot of different things to achieve that. And I think about 1997, perhaps 98, spring of 98, but I think it was the spring of 97 during the what they call the upfronts. Um, which is where all of the networks, cable, and, and and although the cable upfronts were a little bit different timing than the network upfronts, but around that same period of time, in our case, a lot of the you know USA and TNT and TBS and all the other big cable outlets would put out a basically a showcase and say this is this is going to be our new television season. These are going to be the shows that we're going to be promote. This is who we are trying to attract as many advertisers as we possibly could. And like I said, I think in the spring of 1997, we had by that time achieved so much success competing against Monday Night Football that ABC, who I think held the rights at that time, I'm pretty sure it was ABC, took out a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal the day that the upfronts opened up. And in that... Uh, in that full page ad, I wish I still had it. It's around somewhere. I don't even have to dig it up in one of my storage units somewhere around the country. But uh, there was a big full page ad that said something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, don't wrestle with your audience. You know, promoting Monday Night Football, but at the same time, they showed that you know WCW Nitro and and WWF or WWE and Raw occupied probably five out of the top ten hours in prime time on Monday nights. So when ABC, when ABC and, and the NFL decide they have to take out a full page ad to counter what we were doing on Nitro, that was like a, that's why I kept that ad. <laughs> that's why I tore it out and put it in the frame and used to have it in my office because that was like, okay, yeah, Monday night football is a big deal. They're, they're, they're the 300 pound gorilla or whatever. But you know, for them to have to take out a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal to kind of counter our success was a real feather in, in our cap, all of us. So listen, we all know that 2020 has been a little nuts, but that doesn't mean you should disregard your nuts, no matter what size or shape they're in. In fact, Manscaped is on a mission to take care of your manhood with their below the waist grooming and hygiene products. And great news, they've just released their products in the UK, Canada, and Australia. We all know a story where somebody has gotten a little too much color on accident, trimming their little delicates or big delicates. Uh, but that's a thing of the past now because Manscaped is here to save the day. And Manscaped has just relieved the new crop care kit, which is a formulation bundle to give you a plus balls. And it's the ultimate male hygiene hack. The crop care kit includes the crop preserver ball deodorant. The name there speaks for itself. You've even got the Crop Reviver Ball Toner. 
This is a spray-on toner that's going to give your balls a little slice of heaven with their aloe vera and hazel extracts. They've got a crop cleanser body wash, a full body wash that you could also use on your hair. They've got the crop mop ball wipes. Never know when an opportunity strikes. You need to be prepared at all times. What about foot deodorant? The new foot duster. It's a free gift that's designed to keep the stankiest feet smelling fresh. And let's not forget, it's all about the best trimmer for your butt, your balls, your body. It's the lawnmower 3.0. Got a replaceable ceramic blade with that same great advanced skin safe technology. It's going to help you reduce those grooming accidents. They've even got waterproof technology. So you can groom in the shower for up to 90 minutes. We should also mention that all these formulations are all vegan, cruelty-free, dye-free, sulfate-free, and paraben-free. You know your manhood is in good hands. And you're probably playing with your balls right now. Might as well well invest in the crop care kit to make your balls elite. The the elite balls. Get 20% plus free shipping at manscaped.com with the promo code 83weeks. If you care for your beautiful balls of yours, all you've got to do is go to that site, hit a few buttons on your phone, and you're going to change your life for the better, brother. Get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the promo code 83weeks and uh, add some swag to your saggy bag. That's real, folks. Add some swag to your saggy bag at manscaped.com and our promo code, of course, 83weeks. It's just fun to to hear you know bruce always talks about on something to wrestle whenever ratings aren't good or you know the house doesn't draw whatever isn't going well in professional wrestling everybody's always got an excuse lined up and i just wanted your take on the monday night football situation but man there's lots of finger pointing going around here because we've got weak numbers on wcw saturday night uh they did a 1.9 main event which is a syndicated show would have had Bagwell and DDP do a 1.5, which is one of the, th- the the lowest ratings in history. I think at that point it's a, the third lowest. So business is down. You know, d- did you hear lots of um, things like, well, I mean, the business is cyclical, or this is our down season, or were you hearing things like that in this era of WCW, or not so much? Yeah, I mean, there was always look. I guess in any form of entertainment, right? When things aren't going well, it's easy to look around the room and criticize other people or point fingers or, or, or in this industry, you know, fade the heat to somebody else. It's really not my fault. Nothing that I'm doing. It's that damn Bill Watts or it's that damn Eric Bischoff or it's that damn Jim Hurd or whoever, you know, blame it on the top guy. Um, but in this case, I think it was exacerbated by the fact that there was so much dislike, disdain resentment for bill watts they didn't just most of the talent didn't just dislike him they resented him it was disdain um that combined with the low performance so much of the finger pointing was directed right at bill watts and of, and of course the creative you know creative always no, no matter <laughs> if if you're in this case dusty Rhodes, even though dusty was answering to bill watts at the time and, and bill watts would have to take responsibility for this show, much like I have to take responsibility for the shows that happen under my watch, whether I had anything to do with creative or not, it was still my responsibility. And in this case, it was Bill Watts's responsibility. Um, the creative on the show sucked. It just did. Um, I'm sure it was hampered a lot <clears throat> by Bill. 
I'm sure Dusty was really frustrated. I know he was because we talked about it at this time. I was pretty close to Dusty at this point. Um, Dusty was just completely disillusioned. I was going to say disenfranchised, but disillusioned with the whole process. And he was doing the best he could under the circumstances. But, you know, Dusty got a lot of of heat for it. Watts got a lot of heat for it for a lot of reasons. Um, I I think people probably looked at the wrestling business and – Decided, wow, this is just one of those, you know, it's cyclical. You always hear that, you know, it's a general excuse. Oh, it's just just a cycle. It happens every five or six years and it'll come back and we just got to tread water. You hear a lot of that kind of conversation. But at this point, honestly, I was staying as far away from that kind of conversation as I possibly could. You know, I I came to WCW. I, I didn't want to get sucked into the politics of it all. I was an outsider. So it wasn't like people were reaching out to me and kind of embracing me and, and, and trying to get me on their you know political team, so to speak. Uh, I was just there. I was, I did my, I flew in, I did my job. I was polite. I was professional and I flew home when it was over and I didn't involve myself. So there was a lot of chatter and miserable kind of vibes floating around, but I stayed as far away from it as I could. Well, it's, uh, it's something that's at least on the radar of WCW's president at the time, Bill Shaw, he's going to call the meeting at the end of October to discuss the declining ratings. And it's even mentioned here in the observer that for years, wrestling has been the highest rated program on cable television, but that's no longer the case. And the ratings have fallen to a point where TBS could just do a pivot and play one of their old popular 1960s comedy reruns and with no cost deliver a stronger and larger audience than pro wrestling. So Shaw's, I think maybe hitting the panic button a little bit, and they're going to try to focus on November sweeps. This is all according to the observer. And we've got a lot of our listeners, Eric, who, who aren't as familiar as the TV business as you. And I think TV sweeps happen like four times a year, like February, May, July, and November. But explain to everybody, what the hell is a November sweeps? Well, a couple times during the year, November being one of them, uh, networks uh, would put their best foot forward because Nielsen would track the November ratings. And those ratings were really the measurement against the promises that networks made to advertisers. So, for example, if if you and I own the – the Eric and Conrad, you know, cable network. And we went out with our upfronts and said, we're going to guarantee, you know, our primetime lineup Monday through Friday is going to deliver, you know, a 2.0 rating and a three share or four share, whatever the number is, whatever you guarantee your advertisers. Well, if by, if at the end of the network, excuse me, November sweeps, you've fallen short of that, you're in a make good situation, meaning, all right, you took my money, Eric and Conrad, you promised to deliver X, you delivered less than X, so now I want you to provide me commercials to make up the difference for free so that you deliver upon that guarantee. So the the, the sweeps and upfronts were were tied kind of dotted line, you know, they were, they were connected. Um, but it was, it was that time of year where you had to, you know, you had to make good or make good on the promise that you made and the guarantee that you made or make up for it, uh, with additional commercial inventory. And obviously, you know, networks don't like to have to give up free commercial inventory. 
Uh, it's not really free. Somebody's paid for it, but it's a disappointing situation for any network. Let's uh, let's keep it moving here. Uh, I guess I should ask. You know, there's no chance that you're in a meeting that Bill Shaw calls about declining ratings, right? Are you in this meeting? No, no, I, I, I wasn't. I was I was considered to be just a little more important than a potted plant at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's talk about, uh, Jake Roberts, a satellite TV press conference with Jake Roberts is going to happen here and they're going to plug Halloween havoc and it's going to make sports reports around the country. And Meltzer would say the funniest thing is that Roberts was talking very openly with no knowledge that it was going to be on satellite for like an hour. (laughs) And, uh, somebody found out and immediately put music over the videos, but it was audible at one point that he was complaining of the lack of medical coverage and he used colorful language, t- joked about doing mushrooms and well, he's just Jake. You, you haven't spent a lot of time talking about Jake Roberts here. Did you have much interaction at all with him throughout your wrestling tenure? Very little, you know, I, and I was thinking about that today again, you know, watching this, I'm like it, flashing me back 28 years ago or whatever it was trying to remember details that I can share. The first time I ever did an interview with Jake, and it might have been for one of the syndicated shows, probably WCW Pro, and we were at the Gainesville Center in Gainesville, Georgia, and I had never met Jake, never, obviously never worked with Jake. I certainly knew of him, but had never even had a handshake and a hello with him at this point. And, you know, had had an interview with him in the ring. And I just remember how easy it was. Jake was one of those guys like Mick Foley or, or Steve Austin or, you know, Ric Flair, um, guys that you could just get in there with. You didn't even really have to have bullet points. I mean, if you knew what the story was, you knew where the event was, you knew when the event was, you just kind of open up, you know, set up a guy like Jake Roberts and let him go. And you're going to probably walk out with gold. And I remember walking, you know, coming out of the ring after that first promo because I was, you know, I was nervous. I was still new, relatively new on the job. I was still the outsider. I was the low-level announcer. And for me to have an opportunity to, you know, interview Jake Roberts was a big freaking deal for me. So I was, I was excited and and as nervous as I guess I get. Um, more excited than nervous, but I was aware that I could really fuck this up if I'm if I if I'm not careful. And in, instead, it turned out to be great. And that was just because of Jake. That had nothing to do with me. I, I set him up, and he took the ball, and he delivered a hell of a promo. And, and I remember thinking, okay, I could, I could get used to working with this guy. But I think that was the only time I ever, I ever worked with Jake directly. Well, well he's, uh, he's here in WCW. He's a top guy. But, uh, well, I don't know that he exactly knows what he's supposed to be doing when he's out doing PR for the company. He's on the Nashville network on a talk show as he's supposed to be promoting this pay-per-view, but he's coming off like a baby face, but he doesn't on the show. He is a heel through and through somebody else. Who's a heel. Well, maybe behind the scenes, Meltzer has a report that a locker room incident happened on October 5th. And the result is Scott Steiner was removed from all the house shows on the new bookings, including Halloween havoc. Just a few days after he won the TV title from Rick Steamboat. Uh, of course, Rick is out of action after tearing his peck in Japan. And he wasn't expected back until both of their contracts expired in December. And they had Scott scheduled to appear on the 14th of October to drop the TV title in Dothan. 
And then, uh, they're going to give him some time off with pay until the expiration of his contract. But then he sends note that he suffered a deep thigh bruise on October 5th. And it's the doctor's recommendation that he stay out of the ring for three more weeks. And of course, uh, Meltzer freestyles, the company assuredly wants him to do one last job, dropping that title before no longer booking him. Do you remember there being some, uh, I think the rumor and innuendo is that Scott Steiner did not like Bill Watts. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's an understatement. I, I think if anybody <clears throat> really kind of personified the disdain that the vast, not a hundred percent of the locker room, but the vast majority of the locker room, if anybody, you know, really personified that disdain, it was Scott Steiner. Mm. I mean, look, Watts was a bully. He just was, and he, he treated people, as I said at the beginning of the show, so with so much disrespect and almost taunted talent. It was almost like, you don't like it, take a shot. You don't like it. He didn't quite say it, but that was the implication. Everything with Bill was like a physical testosterone, you know, fueled challenge. And my way or the highway kind of, if you don't like it, you know, go ahead, take a swing. I dare you. You know, that, that kind of attitude if, if not exact verbiage. And we all know Scott Steiner's not, the, never was, probably still is not the kind of guy that's going to tolerate that. I mean, Scott was his own worst enemy in some cases, many cases. Um, his, his temper is legendary. Um, so that was just, that was a bomb just waiting to go off. That was going to happen eventually. And Scott probably did the right thing by not showing up because I think if Scott would have showed up, the tension, the, the confrontation would have escalated and it might've gotten ugly at some point because Scott didn't give a shit. He just didn't care. Okay. Stop what you're doing. Listen very, very carefully. The most hated jeweler in America is excited to introduce you to someone very special. Oh, she's beautiful. Classy. She's brilliant. She will dazzle you. People just can't stop staring at her. Meet Krista. And she's easy. Wait, what? Krista is Steven Singer's most loved engagement ring, and it takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye-flawless, near-colorless, high-quality, round, brilliant-cut diamond, expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting that will withstand the test of time. Krista's available. She's ready for love, and she's ready to meet you. Steven Singer isn't in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. This magnificent full one-carat round brilliant diamond is only $3,198. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Plus, free shipping, and get this, 12 months interest-free financing. Steven's showroom is open by appointment only, or you can go to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista Ready for Love engagement ring. Steven Singer Jewelers. Real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Let's talk about somebody else that, uh, well... It's one of our all-time tag favorites. We're talking about the Steiners. Let's talk about the road warriors. There's a rumor going around in this era that the company, the WWF rather 
is considering a new version of Legion of Doom, Animal and Crush. Of course, we know that didn't actually happen. Uh, but Meltzer's making note here that the split between Hawk and Animal is very, very real. Of course, we're on the heels of SummerSlam 92. And if you've watched Dark Side of the Ring, you know that there was a major falling out there. And it looks like uh, the team is going to be split for good. We know eventually they get back together. But they're both sort of upset with the other and pointing fingers and keeping their distance. And Hawk shows up backstage at a WCW show in St. Paul. And maybe it looks like he might be trying to do something different. Of course, we know he doesn't come in until 93 and then only for a very short time. How close were you in this era? You know, those guys being from Minnesota, you're from Minnesota. Were were you, did you have any relationship with either of those guys here in 92 yet? No, you know, the road warriors were, were a big deal in Minneapolis and the AWA prior to 87 when I got there. So I was certainly, you know, very familiar with them as a tag team, uh, as a fan. Um, and we knew a lot of the same people, but I didn't know them personally, either one of either one of the road warriors personally until they came to WCW. So there was a lot of connective tissue there in terms of friendships and people we all knew and places we hung out and things like that. But I didn't know them personally. I'd never had a conversation with them until they came to WCW. Let's talk a little bit about Eric Watts. There's going to be a center stage taping on October 19th. That's going to air on the 24th and the 31st, but this taping is essentially the Eric Watts show. Paulie dangerously comes out with a masked man who I believe was the Italian stallion. And they're going to call him the masked intruder. And he's going to say that, Hey, I'm going to take care of Rick rude. So he's going to have his TV debut match. This masked intruder against Eric Watts. And of course, Eric Watts beats him. And then Paulie goes nuts and slaps him. And then uh, Medusa comes out and they get into it. So it's going to be a whole storyline here with Medusa and Paulie. And we're going to see some of that here on this pay-per-view. On the next taping, they have Eric Watts beat Bobby Eaton and Bobby Eaton was managed, uh, by Michael Hayes and, and Paulie dangerously this week. It's pretty remarkable how big the push is for Bill Watts son, Eric here. How much of a, a problem do you think this was for the rest of the talent in the locker room? Did you hear? I mean, listen, we've all heard that he was, and we've seen that maybe Eric wasn't a natural in the ring, but I imagine that this really upset a lot of the guys in the locker room who were supposedly being bullied and having their money cut and things are not great. And now, oh my gosh, here's the promoter's son or the booker's son putting over all over TV. Yeah. Again, it just made a really, really bad situation even worse. Now, it was mitigated to a degree by the fact that most people generally liked Eric. Eric was a good guy. Right. He was, he was a likable guy. And I think most people, uh, the impression, it's just my impression. I didn't, you know, I talked to DDP about it a little bit at that time because DDP and I were pretty close and we talked about a lot of stuff. But I didn't really talk to too many other people about the business when I wasn't actually working. Um but the sense that I got was that most people really liked Eric and they did, almost didn't blame Eric. They blamed Bill. You know, Eric was just a young guy that was trying to break into the business. And, you know, I think anybody that was honest with themselves would have taken it 
advantage of the opportunity that Eric had, um, especially if they were young and, and to a degree green and naive. Didn't you know Eric didn't know any better. Eric didn't realize how much heat he was going to get from the push that his father was giving him. Had he been in the business for five or six years prior to this, he probably would have said, dad, nah, I don't think I want that because that kind of heat is stuff that you just can't, you, you can never get rid of it. Uh, it sticks. But regardless of all that, I think most, most of the talent, most of the people that Eric worked with generally liked Eric. They just hated his father. Right. Let's talk about, uh, something that most of us hated. And that was <laughs> slam jam one, the WCW album. Uh, this has always tickled me that for so many years here, uh, both the WWF and WCW released albums of theme songs. Probably the most famous one on this particular album is the man called sting theme, but there's lots of others on here. Cactus Jack, uh, Rick rude, Dustin Rhodes, the Steiner brothers, Johnny be bad. Is this. Is this actually profitable for the company or is it just WCW's attempt at, Hey, let's get another piece of media out there. I think it was the latter. That was Sharon Sadello that was behind that. She was the VP of marketing at the time. And I think she was instrumental in that as well. And you know, I don't know the answer to this. I'm asking you if you might, and I can't imagine you do, but wasn't Michael Hayes, the producer of that slam jam. Yeah, he was a big part of it, and uh, so was his old pal, uh, Jimmy Papa of Grand Theft Records in Texas. Oh, man, I remember that. Actually, the last night that I was in WWE this past run, um, it was right after the Las Vegas show, actually. And I had had a, you know, I, I met Tyson Fury and Rick Flair down at the bar, and you know, we had a cocktail or two. And then I got a text from Bruce saying, hey, Michael and I are over at some restaurant. Uh, over at the MGM Grand, he said, "Come on over here and you know have have a drink with us, have a bite to eat." So I I left the hotel that I was at with Fury and and Flair, and took a cab over and sat down with Michael and Michael and I. It's it, it was really it's, it's been interesting over the years. Uh, I didn't realize I had that much heat with Michael. Um, I, I knew he, you know, he, he tolerated me when I, when I got to WWE, you know, he tolerated as a talent going back to 2000, whatever it was one or two or whatever. I can't remember, you know, when I got back to WWE as a talent or when I first got to WWE as a talent, I should say, Michael was kind of standoffish, you know, he had a chip on his shoulder and I went, you know, he just must be hanging on to that Monday night war thing and took it way too personally. Cause a lot of people did. And not saying they shouldn't have, but he he was one of those guys that he was so – my impression was that he was so loyal WWE that he still resented the fact that that guy that kicked their ass for you know so long was not working for the company. Mm-hmm. He wasn't the only one. But I assumed, which was a mistake on my part, that that's what it was. And if you go back to that table for three, uh, the, the very first one that I did with Jim Ross and Michael Hayes and myself and who else, I don't can't remember who else. It might have been McFoley. I can't remember. Hayes, first of all, Hayes was hammered. So he must have pounded a fifth of whiskey before we did the table for three. And it was pretty obvious that he was hammered. And he was just ripping into me on that very first table for three I ever did. And I, you know, I just, I took it, you know, I was like, 
you know, I guess this is entertaining. I guess this is what WWE wants for this table for, for three. So I'll just play my role and, you know, roll with it. But I could never quite figure it out. Now, let's go back to October or whatever it was last year uh, in Las Vegas, the last show that I was on, actually. I go over to meet Bruce and, and Michael, and Michael was already feeling no pain, to put it mildly. And then we finally started having a real conversation, not just a superficial business or social, you know, hey, how are you, polite type of conversation. But we started really getting into it a little bit. And Michael was feeling no pain, as I said, and he was very uninhibited, to say the least. And we got into it. And, and Michael said, you know, I, I, I was really hurt. My words, not his, but that was the essence of his point. Because I was really hurt, man, when he fired me from WCW. I thought we were tight. Remember when we produced all that music together? And I, I, I didn't produce anything. I was there. I might have been assisting. I might have been – who knows what I was doing. I was kind of a team player. So if somebody needed help doing anything, I would show up. And when, I remember we did it at the – I think we shot a video at the WCW headquarters, the 14th floor over at CNN Center. And it was at night, and there was – copious amounts of all kinds of fun stuff going on uh, recreationally. And Michael and I, we had a blast. You know, I didn't partake quite as much as Michael did, but I, you know, I was no saint either. And we got along. We had a great time. And I think Michael's feeling was that we were pretty tight. And then shortly after Bill Watts left, I had to make some pretty tough decisions. And one of them was cutting, cutting the Freebirds. And I think you know, we, we finally cleared the air after all that time. But I, re, I only bring that up because I remember that Slam Jam project. And Michael Michael loves music. Mm -hmm. he, he really does. And I think that was his opportunity to, to really get his hands on something that he was passionate about, that he felt could really help the company. And he was good at it. Um, but, yeah, it just, it just threw me back to that night. That's the only reason I brought it up. Not that important, but it was just one of those memories from this time that sticks out. Hypothetically, how many times have you, uh, loaded up Mrs. B you guys are going to make a road trip and you know, she says, Eric, throw in some of those old wrestling theme songs. Yeah, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. <laughs> my, first of all, my taste in music and Mrs. B's taste in music tend to be, I mean, there's some things we both like, but for the most part, uh, we have a different <clears throat> idea of what we like in music. So, you know, she, Mrs. B never looks over to me and goes, Hey, Eric, why don't you put on some music for us? That doesn't happen. There's a, a report from Meltzer that just shows you in his opinion, how much the stuff is being booked on the fly. These days, the new WCW magazine had a lot of articles talking about Halloween havoc sting and Jake, of course, are in place. And so is rude and Chono as well as Simmons and barbarian, which we're going to talk about, but they also had the original lineup with, uh, Gordy and Williams defending the tag titles against the Steiner brothers. I guess originally the Steiners were going to win, but. Well, that's no longer in the cards. Steamboat was supposed to be defending the TV title against Steve Austin and Cactus Jack was supposed to take on Dustin Rhodes at a false count anywhere match plans change, pal. That's gotta be one of the reasons that it's probably, uh, tough to do a magazine in professional wrestling, right? Because you don't want to be beholden to an idea you had six weeks ago, just because it was printed in a magazine, right? Six weeks. Try three months. Oh. Um, same with same was true with, you know, all the marketing uh, for for the pay per view through through Direct TV or you know, 
Dish or whoever was promoting your or distributing your pay-per-view, they would need all of their collateral materials three months in advance. Posters, match titles, you know, all of it. As much information as you could give them, they wanted three months in advance. So, you know, booking on the fly, I dare say there's probably more booking on the fly today than there was in 1992. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's so much to produce now. And between injuries and contract issues and COVID and pregnancies and God knows what else, you know, can happen, you know, inside of a three month window, shit changes all the time. And I don't think it was any different in 92, except for it was way more obvious because of the lead times that magazines imposed on you and the lead times that direct, you know, TV and other satellite, you know, providers or cable providers needed in order to promote the pay-per-view. So it was glaringly, you know, it was more obvious. Whereas today, you know, not as much of that type of promotion exists. You know, WWF and AEW and everybody is, they're, they're cable-driven much more than they are pay-per-view-driven. Um, in, in terms of marketing and promotion. So you, you don't notice it as much today as you did back then. But I, like I said, I, I'm sure there's a lot more booking on the fly today than there ever was in 1992. Man, I've been listening to JR's new audio book under the black hat. And, and of course the best way to listen to that, if you're doing what I'm doing is to make sure that not everybody gets to hear what JR saying. Only I hear it and I hear it better than ever because I'm recommending the wireless earbuds from Raycon. That's the best way to listen for me, a premium pair of wireless earbuds, especially when you can get it for like half the price of those other guys. We have been recommending Raycon for a long time here on the show. I like that it has more bass. I really think my music sounds better to these than any others that I've ever owned. And it's maybe the most comfortable that Eric has ever worn. He's admitted that he has a little bit of a cauliflower ear situation going on. It's not always comfortable to use an earbud. That's not the case with Raycon and they've really outdone themselves. Their newest model, the everyday E25 earbuds, maybe the best ones yet. Seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass as I mentioned, a more compact design, Eric's favorite, a noise isolating fit. But when you're working with these, you're doing, you know, not just podcasts and books on tape, but you got to do zoom calls and things like that. Well, six hours of playtime, brother. How about that? Raycon is here. They're stylish, they're discreet, no dangling wires or stems. Listen, you already know Ray J founded this, but every celebrity is using these. Uh, Snoop Dogg, Mike Tyson, even Melissa Etheridge. Give them a try. I love mine, Eric loves his, and you're going to love them too. Raycon even has a 45-day free return policy. You make sure that they're the right pair of wireless earbuds for you. And for a limited time, you can get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. That's B-U-I-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash 83 weeks for a special 15% discount on Raycon wireless earbuds. Make sure to check them out now while the deal's still running. That's buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. Get with the program. Get some Raycons. Well, let's get to the show itself. We mentioned it got 84.2% thumbs down. There's 7.7% thumbs in the middle. 8.1% thumbs up. There was a, a single dark match here. Eric Watts and Van Hammer are going to be Vinny Vegas and diamond Dallas page in 12 minutes when Watts pinned DDP with an Oklahoma side roll. It got negative one star, but dude, 
process this. We've got Kevin Nash and DDP and they're losing to Eric Watts and Van Hammer. What the fuck, man? Yeah, I Watts didn't think very highly of DDP at all. Um, he probably thought less of DDP than he did of me or, or yeah, I'd say that's a fair statement. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. You know, I don't think Watts thought very highly of Kevin Nash. In fact, I'm sure he didn't. Kevin didn't fit Watts's vision of what a wrestler should be. Uh, so it, it, not surprising at all. Can't quite figure out why <laughs> they would have thought that, you know, Eric Watson, Van Hammer was a good solution other than, and you'll see this throughout this card. That was another one of the, you know, in addition to let's bring wrestling back to the way it was in the seventies, let's turn out all the lights in the arena and put a spotlight in the ring. So it looks like it did in 1960 when everybody had black and white TVs and wrestling was produced in a studio. Um, in addition to that kind of throwback mentality that was so persistent in most of the decisions that Bill Watts made, um, there was a youth movement, you know, there was this feeling and you and I've talked about this before. I've been hearing this shit since 1987. Oh, these young guys, you know, we got to get the young guys over, but the young guys don't get over, you know, we, these guys, you know, the first match, Michael Hayes, Bobby Eaton, Arn Anderson end up losing to Z man. What was it? Tommy gun. I don't remember his last first name. Tommy Gunn, I think it was, and Shane Douglas. Now, obviously, Shane Douglas would you know, go on to be a, a pretty successful and talented performer, but he was considered to be one of the young guys. And watch the crowd. Man, I encourage people listening to this, go back, watch this pay-per-view. It's a, and again, it's educational to go back and, and look at the product in 1992. Look at the vision. Look at the psychology in producing this product in 1992 and compare it to what we see today. And just appreciate the differences. You know, it's it's fun for me at least. I, I get a kick out of this stuff to go back and watch how the product has evolved, not only from a production point of view, from the promo perspective, although I would argue that promos have devolved as opposed to evolved over the last 28 years. Um, but the wrestling itself, the presentation of the entering action itself has evolved so much that I, you can't really appreciate how much it's evolved to the point that it is today unless you go back and watch some of the stuff. And you'll be amazed. So I encourage people to do that. But again, throughout this, you'll, you'll see you know, uh, inferences and suggestions of oh, young talent. We got so much new young talent, but the young talent wasn't getting over. You know, just because you're young doesn't mean you're going to get over. Um, it takes a long time to get over in, in, in the wrestling industry. And, you know, the fact that Z-Man and Gunn and Douglas, you know, defeated Hayes, Eaton, and Anderson, and the crowd shit on it, should have told you something. You know what's interesting is, Meltzer even talks about this. I guess we should just mention uh, the guy you were sort of freestyling was Tommy Gunn. I know where you got that. Tommy Gunn is a great character from the Rocky series, but the real guy behind the gun character is Tom Brandy, but his name here is Johnny gun, Johnny so, gun. Yeah. Okay. But, but I see how, you know, Tom Brandy, Johnny gun, I get it. Uh, but you got Z man, Shane Douglas and Johnny gun on one side, Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton and Michael Hayes on the other 11 minutes and two seconds. Unbelievably Tom Brandy. I'm sorry. Johnny gun pins Michael Hayes with a Fez press after a, uh, a hot tag and the crowd boos heavily. It's 
the two and a half star match. And Meltzer even says it's easy to say that these fans in Philadelphia are quote unquote heel fans, but they don't cheer any other heels. They just really love Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton and Michael Hayes. It makes you wonder, did we just have the creative flip-flopped? I mean, clearly those guys are phenomenal heel characters, but should they have been baby faces just based on the reaction? Or they should have been in there with, with a better team. Right. There you go. That, that was, that was the real issue. I, I, I mean, you certainly can't take three guys like Hayes, Eaton and Anderson who have, who, who were established yep. heels at the time and go, okay, we're going to wrestle these young guys. So we better make them baby faces and make the young guys heels. I mean, that's not a solution. That's, that's desperation. And it comes with a really high cost going forward. I, I just think pushing a young team with very little experience who the audience did take nothing away from their skills. Let's just assume that they were on a scale of one to 10, if they were an eight and they had phenomenal skills, the audience still didn't know them. Right. They, they were new. And the idea that this is something that I hear all the time and it frustrates me. And it's usually, I hear it from people that have never been in the business, right? It's, it's these strong, you know, loud opinions, from people that have never been in the business and, and, and been responsible for producing things that work. Um, the, but the common thread is, Oh no, we need young talent. We need a fresh, young talent, fresh, young talent in and of itself doesn't mean shit until you get it over them over. And you use guys like Hayes and Eaton and Anderson to help get young guys over, but you don't put young talent that has no following, no credibility, no equity with the audience, put them in the ring with a heel team. I don't care if they're heel team or not, put them in there with a heel team that the, that does have a lot of equity, beat them with a Fakakta finish. Anyway, the finish is bad. And, and, <laughs> And then be surprised that the audience shits on it. That's just fundamental. I mean, I don't know. There's, you know, and I'm sure, you know, and I know Jim Ross, you know, we, we, we're both close to Jim and, and I respect the fuck out of Jim. I really do. But I, you know, I think Jim, much like I probably, my opinion of Vern Gagne is obviously a very tilted one in, in Vern's favor because of the respect and, 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 and gratitude that I have for him giving me an opportunity. I, I guess in my own mind, I probably don't look at Vern as objectively, objectively as maybe I should. I don't really care, but it is what it is. And I think Jim probably feels the same way about Bill Watts. You know, Bill Watts gave Jim a lot of opportunity. Jim Ross learned a lot from Bill Watts. And I'm sure Jim looks at Bill differently than maybe some people do for that very reason. And I understand it because I'm guilty of it too. But I, I think Bill Watts was one of those guys that had his moment in the eighties in a small little territory, developed a, a great reputation, but he was so stuck in the mud, much like Vern Gagne was hmm. so stuck in the mud that he wasn't nearly as good of a booker or promoter or whatever you want to call it is he was cracked up to be. And I think this is evidence of that. This first match was it, you know, putting those guys over Hayes and Eaton and Anderson, I think was a perfect example of Bill Watts, not really having his finger on the pulse as much as he thought he did. It's kind of fun to go back and watch this. I, I know that 
you know, we can beat it up, but I do think if you're going to watch, well, there's a couple of fun things on here to watch, but this match in particular, it almost feels like a raw after WrestleMania, you know, back when fans could actually attend the show, it all, you know, sometimes that crowd would hijack the whole show and that makes it fun. So as the heels are, are working the crowd, the fans are getting louder and louder. I mean, when Hayes starts strutting around asking the crowd, if they liked what he was doing, they're going nuts. And that's clearly not the original plan, but it made for a, f- a fun match, even though it maybe isn't the ideal outcome. Uh, it was entertaining for me this week. No, I enjoyed watching. I really enjoyed watching Michael. You know, I, I, I didn't see a lot of Michael Hayes's work. Obviously I've seen a lot of Anderson's work and Eaton's work over the years. Uh, saw that up close and personal a lot. Um, but Michael, I didn't really watch a lot of his stuff or I should say appreciate it as much as I should have. And going back and watching Michael work here was, uh, it was fun for me. He was obviously an amazing worker. Next up, you get two all-time greats. Rick Steamboat's going to pin Brian Pillman in 10 and a half minutes after a double reversal coming off a hot looking sunset flip off the top rope by Ricky Steamboat. Melzer would say the action was very good, but it seemed like they were just getting into it. And then they went to the finish. These guys could have used a little more time to do the pay-per-view quality match that this looked to be on paper. Still at this point, the show was pretty good. Three and a quarter stars. I love these guys. I think they could have a a great match anywhere in the country on any given night. Uh, just two super talented entertainers here, but that top rope sunset flip, that's something that, uh, man, that's old school. And I liked it. What'd you think watching it back? I liked it. There was a lot of things I liked about this match. It's interesting though. When I watched it back, the first thing that I noticed is when Pillman made his entrance, I could I could sense and this morning watching it now, obviously I didn't talk to Brian about it, you know, afterwards or anything like that. Like I said, I wasn't even at the show. Um, but you could, I could just tell looking at Brian watching it back today was he was come through the curtain. He didn't want to be there. Right. He was, he was not excited about this match. Probably the finish is what he wasn't excited about. I'm guessing, I don't know. Um, I'm guessing that because Bill Watts was so, determined to bring the wrestling back to what it was in the seventies. Um, that a lot of the stuff that, you know, flying Brian Pillman liked to do and was great at and got him over was probably not going to happen in this match. Bill didn't want to see a lot of that stuff. He wanted to really bring it back to the seventies and the eighties. And that high flying action was not something that Bill was fond of. He, he didn't like it. So you, you take a guy like Brian Pillman who had built his career on, on, on that kind of high flying action. And now he's Matt wrestling, mm. you know, he's, he's going back to, you know, the gotch days, you know, that was not, not something that I think Brian was happy about. And I could see it in his eyes as he was walking through the curtain. He wasn't trying to stay in character. He was just, he was going through the motions. And I think, you know, once he got into the match, he, he did a great job and he was a pro, but man, that finish was just fucked up. I just, how, how, how can you book a match like, well, it's a rhetorical question. I've done it too. So I should shut my mouth, but you have a guy like Ricky Steamboat, and Brian Pillman, who are capable of so much. You give them a pretty solid match, despite the fact that Pillman had to leave half his arsenal in the, in the locker room. Uh, and then you you end it with a, just a mess of a finish. Mm. 
There was no drama. There was no excitement. There was no anything. It was like it was like going to a movie. I always draw these parallels. Like going to a, a ninety-minute movie, and the first eighty-five minutes of it were great, and the last three minutes or four minutes or six minutes of it sucked. And you walk out of the movie, you don't remember the first eighty-five minutes. You remember the last five, and the last five sucked. And that's the taste you walk out of the theater with. And that's the way I felt about this match. It's like pretty solid match. Ricky Steamboat, Brian Pillman, not what I was hoping it would be, just given what the two were capable of doing at the time. But in the context of what Watts was trying to achieve, okay, I understand it. I don't like it, but I understand it. And it was still pretty solid until the finish. It was like, what the hell is that? It's just, I don't know. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late to find yourself at a railway crossing, waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you may feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't ever to the naked eye. Trains often appear to be further away and moving slower than they are. They can't stop quickly. Even if the engineer hits the emergency brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop over a mile to stop. By that time, it's too late, and the result is a potentially deadly crash. The point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The trains can't stop quickly. Even if it sees you, it ends in disaster. The signals are on, the train is on its way, and you just need to remember one thing. Stop. The trains can't. You agree with me that, or, or, or Meltzer, actually, I guess, that uh, it was cut too short and needed a little more time. Clearly they probably could have used a different finish. We agree on that. But when you see criticism, like, oh man, they needed more time. No, that's bullshit. That that's, that's somebody who doesn't know who wants to pretend they do or, or convince others that they know more time would not have changed the body of this match. Right. More time would not have allowed Brian Pillman to be Brian Pillman. More time would not have allowed Ricky Steamboat to do so, uh, probably a lot of the things that Ricky Steamboat wanted to do. So what the fuck is more time going to do, Dave? Just give these time these two guys more time to do less than the audience was expecting from them? That's a, that's a type of inside comment that people make who have never been on the inside, but they sound really smart. It's bullshit. If, if I would have gone the other way. I would have said, look, if we're not going to let Ricky Steamboat be Ricky Steamboat, we're not going to let Brian Pillman be Brian Pillman, then instead of giving him 12 minutes, let's give him eight and try to pick up the pace a little bit and at least keep the energy up as opposed to, oh, let's give him an extra five more minutes so they can do the same things we've been watching now for the last 12 and maybe people will like it more. Dumb. Dumb comment to make, but not surprising. Bill Watts is out next. He gets to be the bearer of good news and, uh, Missy Hyatt's going to do her stick of trying to find out who the referee is going to be for this rude Chono match. And she's trying to get into the locker room and has a little line here, something like, uh, that's the first locker room Missy Hyatt couldn't get into. And, uh, then we get, uh, to visit with team Japan and they've got your boy here, Teddy long. And I guess, uh, a dress do rag. It's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, what's funny. My son Garrett still has a collection of do rags that Teddy would give him every time. Every time Teddy said, Teddy loved Garrett. When Garrett was like eight years old or whatever he was, 10 years old, and he'd come to the studio sometimes while I was working <clears throat> at night. And he, you know, Teddy and I often worked together. We co hosted the main event syndicated show together. So we often worked, you know, evenings and 
Garrett would come down and Teddy would always have like a bunch of his do-rags in his bag to match his outfits. So he'd always give Garrett a do-rag and he still has them to this day. That's hilarious. <laughs> I, I have nothing. I have no memorabilia. Well, I shouldn't say none, but I have like four pieces of memorabilia to represent a 30 plus year career. My son probably has more than I do. And some of it is Teddy long do rags. He would wear them around the house. I remember it was funny. My son, an eight year old, 10 year old kid running around the neighborhood with a do rag riding his bike. It was awesome. <laughs> Yelling homie. Don't play that. It's hilarious. Oh, <laughs> let's talk about, uh, some news here. Eric Watts announced Eric Watts, Bill Watts announces that Terry Gordy was suspended over a contract violation. And he's out of the tag title match. And he's told doc, Hey, you got to find an opponent here for this title match. And Steve Austin's going to step in. But I guess the news here is Terry Gordy quit the promotion. The morning of the show Boy, that's less than ideal. Is it not? You've got a a title match that you've promoted and it's on pay-per-view and one of the big four in the match, uh, quit the morning of that. That can't be easy to pivot and deliver and make fans happy and it's just less than ideal, but that's the, that's the environment that, that all wrestling is in, especially these days. You mentioned it earlier with COVID, you know, you've got a story written out and here's what we're going to do. And then someone can't be there and we've got to do it on the fly, but this is uh way pre COVID. This is just Gordy. not want to be in WCW. Yeah. I don't know what that was all about. Again, I'm, you know, uh, I, I wasn't even allowed to be near any of the conversations regarding talent or booking or any of that. So I, I wouldn't have had any first or even secondhand knowledge of it because I wasn't at the pay-per-view. So whatever happened that morning, I was, I think I was elk hunting <laughs> actually on this pay-per-view. I'm pretty sure I was elk hunting in Colorado. So I, you know, I, I don't know what the issue was, but uh, clearly there was one. Watts is also going to announce that there had been a court injunction and rude won't wrestle twice on this show. They're allowing big van Vader to wrestle Nikita Koloff to defend Rick Rude's U S title for him. And Meltzer would say this was handled poorly because the storyline made no sense. And if in the storyline, they're going to use this excuse, the heels should have at least the last two weekends before the show hinted of going to court to block it. Uh, this is, I don't know. It feels very seat of the pants. What'd you think of this? No, I was thing? I was just going to say, man, this is just a band aid that somebody came up with 20 minutes before they went live. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly what that was. It's like, oh fuck, how do we fix it? How do we cover this? And somebody threw it out there. Okay. Yeah. We'll blame it on the lawyers. Court injunction. Yeah. Okay. That'll work. And they just went with it without really giving it any thought. Cause it made up. Right, that's one of the notes that I'm, this is the first of three matches. that just went, what, 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 what? Why are they doing this? And I get that they, you know, shit happens. Changes have to happen. You got to make make chicken salad out of chicken shit. I get that. I've had to do it. Um, it's never fun, and it usually doesn't turn out very well. But sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. But this one, I think, was really something that somebody came up with. Probably threw it out 15 minutes before showtime, and went, "All right, we'll go with that." Because it, it didn't make any sense. It didn't do anything for anybody involved. It didn't do anything for Nikita. It, do, it didn't do anything for Vader. It didn't do anything for Rude. It just, yeah. Let's talk about Watts for a minute, because it's been written over the years that whenever he was doing Mid-South TV, of course, he was one of the guys hosting the show, of course. And his co-host would introduce the show. Howdy folks. Welcome to Mid-South Wrestling. I'm so-and-so. Uh, we've got a great card for you tonight. Uh, with me today is Bill Watts. And you don't hear that guy's voice again until he signs off because Watts just fills in the gaps the rest of the time. 
And in this era, Bill Watts, if there's a major show, he's going to be on it. If there's a pay-per-view, Bill Watts is going to do a stand-up interview and talk about and explain something. And Meltzer describes it here in his recap of Halloween Havoc as Bill Watts, quote-unquote, get himself over with the marks interview. Did you think it was a little weird that Bill wanted to be on every pay-per-view like this and, and sort of be the authority figure and the out-front personality for WCW? Or was it just the only way he knew since that was the way he handled his own promotion? I didn't judge it too much in the beginning. I mean, again, I came up with Vern Gagne and Vern Gagne did much the same. So it didn't seem that odd to me or out of place to me. It seemed because of the way I was brought up in the industry, it seemed to be fairly natural. What did occur to me, however, was Bill sucked at it. He was not good. The camera didn't like him and he couldn't make up for that with any kind of charisma. And he, no pun intended, wrestled with delivering comprehensive, you know, understandable information. He was not good at it. I don't know what he did in Mid-South. Maybe he was good in Mid-South. But, you know, and again, I I don't like Bill Watts. I never have. Maybe he's, you know, I'm a whole different person now than I was back in 1992. And maybe Bill Watts is too. Maybe I should keep my, my mouth shut a little bit more than I do. Because people do change. They do grow. They do evolve. And I understand that. Um, but so I'll, I'll, I'll be more precise in the way I talk about Bill at this particular time. I didn't like Bill. And then to see a guy that you just, you don't generally just don't like him go out there and, you know, stumble through, um, some of the stuff that Bill stumbled through on the show. I just, I, he was completely ineffective, completely ineffective. I want to go back though. The beginning of the show, we saw Bruno San Martino open up the oh, show with yeah. Tony Schiavone. That I thought was really cool. I, man, I never, I had dinner with Bruno San Martino once, probably right after this pay-per-view or shortly after. It might've been when I was, it might've been after Bill Watts made me executive producer. I I can't remember the day, but I had dinner with him at the Omni Hotel uh, in Atlanta where I was staying. And what a classy guy. And it was, it was such a big deal for me because for a couple of years when I was a kid, I lived in Pittsburgh. And I had a a buddy named Marty Migliaretti, and we would ride our bikes over to Bruno's neighborhood and try to get a look at Bruno, you know, in his yard, walking out to his car or whatever. And Bruno San Martino was a big deal. And for me to to have a chance just to have dinner with him and talk to him, I don't remember what we're talking about, probably doing some kind of a video or something. Um, but it was great. And I, I really enjoyed seeing Tony working with Bruno. Bruno just landed so much. All, <laughs> Bruno San Martino had in spades what Bill Watts had nothing of in terms of charisma on television. That's what I mean about, you know, camera loving you. It doesn't, you don't have to be, you know, a good looking television movie star type, but you have to have that charisma. Michael Hayes had it. You know, different people have that kind of energy. You know, Jesse Ventura, love him or hate him. He had a charisma. He brought energy, brought a larger than life personality and credibility to the product. Bruno didn't bring that. Well, I guess if you were a wrestling fan, it was larger than life to a degree. But he just brought so much gravity and foundation and and stability to the product that w- credibility is another way of saying it, but that whatever he talked about, even if he stumbled on a word or two and he did, you know, he was new on the scene. He wasn't probably totally familiar with all of the talent. And we are out there on live TV. If you haven't been doing it, you know, for a while, like Bruno hadn't, you know, it's a little awkward, but it didn't matter with Bruno. 
because he had so much credibility. Whereas Bill Watts, nobody really knew who he was. Mid-South, nobody gave a shit about Mid-South in anywhere in the country except for in the small little part of the country that, that saw Mid-South on uh, on syndication or to whatever extent they were in cable. He was a, he was a no-name on a national level um, with no charisma. And that's the difference between a guy like Bruno San Martino, who was not a broadcaster, but was a legendary, you know, performer and an icon, and a Bill Watts who thought he was, and couldn't do a good promo if he, you know, put a gun to his head. How much do you think of uh, of Bruno's interest in being here and working with WCW is just to stick it in Vince's ass because they didn't get along at all here? You know, I don't know. I, I've heard that. You know, I talked to Larry Zabisco about it a lot because Larry and Bruno were obviously tight, and I was pretty tight with Larry Zabisco in, in 1992. Um, uh, I don't know. I maybe I didn't. I don't know. I, I don't want to speculate. I, I really don't because I didn't know Bruno. I I had dinner with him for maybe an hour and a half one night, and that was as much as I knew of Bruno San Martino uh, on a personal level. So I, I don't know. Could be. Could could have been. Or it could have been he just was he was missing the business. You know, people do that. I understand that too. I, there are times when I miss the business. I miss being out there. I miss being in front of a crowd, and maybe that was you know what motivated Bruno, additionally to wanting to stick it up his ass. I don't know. Next up, we get Vader absolutely destroying Nikita Koloff, and Meltzer says it's probably an even better match than Rude could have had with Koloff, but it does destroy the credibility of the title when a champion can pick someone else to defend the belt for him. And, um, Vader picks up the win with a power bomb, 11 minutes, 53 seconds, two and three quarter stars. This is uh, peak Vader. Well, maybe the next year's peak Vader, but I just love Vader in WCW. This was no exception for me. What'd you think? felt the same way you did. Um, there was one part of the match where Vader was working Koloff over in the corner and just hitting him with lefts and rights, body blows. And those, those, those punches looked so good. Vader looked so devastating. I mean, he, it, it was really, really impressive. And Koloff did a great job selling for him. Obviously, Vader wouldn't have looked as good if it wasn't for Koloff helping to make him look good. But Vader was so on the money with his punches. He, I agree with you. If this wasn't his peak, man, he was, he was around in the corner and looking at right in the eye. Good stuff. Uh, especially if you're a Vader fan, go out of your way to check it out. Unfortunately, I don't love the next match. It, and there's a lot of great talent here. You've got, interestingly enough, a couple of Steve Williams, the Dr. Death, Steve Williams and stunning Steve Austin. Uh, and they're going to go to a draw with Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes. And this is like a unification tag title match. It's both the NWA and the world championship wrestling tag titles. They go 30 minutes and it's a draw. Uh, there is a little bit of blood here from Dustin Rhodes. There's some false finishes. There's some ref bumps. Uh, they're going to restart the match. Time runs out three stars. I don't know, man. I don't like a draw on pay-per-view. What'd you think? Three stars. Belser gave this three stars. Felt high to me. <laughs> Thought it sucked. I did too. And I, I want to like it because of the talent, but just this didn't work for me as a fan. I was just kind of bored. No, I mean, if look, there were parts of the match. I, I think Austin, the way he was bumping here was just 
almost if he would have worked any harder at bumping and selling, I would have I would have thought maybe he was just making a point. Um similar to what Shawn Michaels did when he wrestled Hulk Hogan the last time, you know, just over bumping and overselling. He, here Austin wasn't quite that far. He didn't cross that line and over bump and oversell, but man, he was close to it. And but the his ability to bump and his speed and his timing, I really took note of watching this. Just the, his, his ability, his athletic ability, and his psychology and his timing were just on the money. But the but as far as the match, the story within the match, and whether or not the match itself was interesting, I just I I I, I didn't see it. You know, and I'm, I know I'm going to say something that's going to piss off our, our mutual friend, uh, Jim Ross, and I'm sure Steve Williams, Dr. Death at some, at, at, at a point in his career was just awesome. It wasn't here. This, this wasn't the night. Um, I, I was pretty disappointed in this cause I was looking forward to this match, you know, when I knew it was happening now, Dr. Death, Steve, Austin, this is going to be great. Mm, not so much. And the whole, you know, the drama between Rhodes and Wyndham kind of overshadowed it just a little bit. So it just, eh. and then to finish it on a draw, a draw. Yeah. In overtime, wasn't it? I think it was an overtime. Oh, it, Bill Watts, I think was a big proponent of the draw. And I just, I don't know. I don't like the idea of a draw. Something in the, in the newsletter caught my attention. I want to share it with you word for word here. The work was good, but there was no crowd heat, which made the match seem worse than it really was. And, and I think that's probably the story, by the way, like I didn't have a reason to care. I didn't, I didn't feel like the, you know, you always say it's about stakes and certainly the tag titles are here, but there's no story to me besides, you know, the infighting between Wyndham and Rhodes. Uh, but here's the thing that stood out to me in the newsletter. Austin is technically and athletically very good, but his weakness is when it comes to charisma. And that was very apparent in this match. <laughs> and we know that he's about to be the biggest star in the whole fucking world. And listen, everybody evolves and gets better. And this is a different Austin here. As you said, he's a madman flying all over the place. Uh, but Meltzer would be critical of the match saying the match seemed to have no storyline. It was just a series of solid maneuvers going back and forth with no crowd reaction. That's kind of, that's kind of it. That nails it on the head to me, Eric. No. And I think, look, you're right. I often talk about stakes. But stakes are a part of the story, right? You know, stakes aren't in and of themselves enough to really compel people to tune into a pay-per-view or to, or to watch something on television. Stakes are important, but they're only important as it relates to the story. Um, the story is what make this, what makes the stakes feel real and viable. The story is what allows the audience to identify with one character or another so that the stakes are then important. So just having stakes, which is like, oh, let's have a title match. Okay, you got stakes, but there's no story, and therefore nobody gives a shit. So stakes, <laughs> st stakes in and of themselves mean nothing without a story to, to, to help support. Actually, the stakes support the story, not the other way around. Um, and, I, but, and we see a lot of that today. And I'm not going to be critical of anybody right now. I'm going to say this generally, the story that we're watching today with some exceptions, some exceptions, um, there's just not the emphasis on story 
end stakes that there needs to be. It's like, oh, let's throw this man. We'll put these two guys together. This will be great. Put these two girls together. It'll be great. No, it won't because you don't have the fucking story. It doesn't mean the talents aren't great. You know, it just means the story isn't. The reason for us to watch isn't there. Right. Our investment isn't there. We just don't care. And that's what we saw here in this match. The audience just didn't care. They didn't give a shit if the titles were on the line or not. Didn't matter. It's been reported that Americans are overpaying on car insurance by over $21 billion. But searching for a better deal can take hours and typically results in a barrage of unwanted spam calls. Until now, thanks to thezebra.com. Thezebra.com is the nation's leading car insurance comparison site because it's the only place you can compare quotes side by side from over 100 providers and choose the best for you in 90 seconds or less. Plus, they will never sell your information to the spammers. So you won't get all those unwanted calls or emails. You just answer a few questions on a simple, fast form, and they find you the best rates and coverage in your state. TechCrunch calls the Zebra Kayak for auto insurance. And the best part is it's completely free. You can save up to $670 a year using the zebra.com. And with states reopening and people back on the road, the Zebra is committed to making sure you're covered at the lowest price possible. How much can you save on car and home insurance? Go today and start saving at thezebra.com slash 83 weeks. That's thezebra.com slash 83 weeks. Spelled T-H-E-Z-E-B-R-A dot com slash 83 weeks. Let's get to the next segment here. We've got Polly Dangerously and Medusa. Uh, well, oh, this is, this is awesome. <laughs> this is crazy. It actually starts out with Harley Race and Big Van Vader doing an interview, and then Polly comes out. Thanks them for the defending the title to Rick rude. He's excited to, uh, to share half of the winner's purse with these guys. And then it turns into a whole storyline with Medusa coming in and she had been fired by Polly dangerously from the dangerous Alliance. And he's putting over that he's superior because he's an M a N he's a man. And, uh, Medusa at this point, as she's being berated is probably one of the more over baby faces in the building. And she kicks Paul in the head. This is uh, kind of fun. He's going nuts on the mic. There's a little pull apart, a fun skit on the show. What'd you think? It's the only interesting part of the show for me, to be honest. Um, and I should say interesting. The only entertaining part of the show for me was this scene. I thought it was great. I thought Paul did a. F- <laughs> Phenomenal job as he's been doing for 30 years. Um, Medusa, I thought was pretty damn good, you know, pretty good. She took, and I wish the camera, I wish we could have seen Medusa's face more during that scene, because I think from what little, and I was watching so closely, but if her facials were great, I mean, she looked as Paul was berating her he said something effective the only reason you've been here for years is to service rick rude's every need and the only reason that you're still here is because the other hooker that i hired was busy tonight it's like fuck you could not get you couldn't go anywhere near that today no you oh my god you would have been off the air and you would have been me tooed canceled people would to be taking shots at you when you're driving down the road. I mean, Oh my God, the heat that not, and not the kind of heat that you could make money with the kind of heat that puts you out of business. It was unbelievable. 
the the dialogue that went down here, but all during is Paul's just berating her and calling her a slut and a hooker and you're a piece of garbage and you're a woman. You don't have a brain in your head. You, you don't even deserve to have a conversation with me. But I mean, it was just awful, awful. And you, from a little, I could see Medusa's face. She was selling the shit out of it, which I thought was perfect. So that when she, you know, threw that kick, the payoff was huge. You hear, I would go back and watch this. It happens at uh, about one hour and 30 minutes into the show, I think is where it happens. One hour and 31 minutes, somewhere in there. Go back and watch this promo. It's classic Paul E. I think Medusa probably got herself over more and Paul helped her get herself over more in this one scene that she's probably ever been able to, to do again. Since that time, it was as far as getting her character over. I thought Medusa did a great job. And so did Paul was unbelievable. Really? It is, uh, as you said, something you couldn't do now, but quite a segment here on the show. And unfortunately it's followed by something Meltzer described as the match that destroyed the NWA title in the United States. The only thing positive to say is that it's a good thing. It wasn't televised in Japan. And, uh, we've got all the, the dignitaries here. Gary, Michael Capetta is going to bring out, uh, Sakaguchi as the NWA president, Hiro Matsuda, Nakanishi as a member of the Japanese Olympic team from Barcelona. And at some point on here, JR says something like, well, I'm glad I didn't have to pronounce those names. And Meltzer writes, can you imagine that comment from another perspective? Let's say Bruce Baumgartner went to the next card at sumo hall and the new Japan announcer didn't even talk about the guy and who he is and blew it off with a remark. Like, boy, I'm sure glad I don't have to pronounce those American names. What do you think of Meltzer taking to the newsletter here to take a shot at Jr. about that? Uh, yeah, typical pithy comment, whatever. I mean, I, I, I don't think much of Dave in terms of what he writes, you know, I, it's pretty obvious to me. Dave is constantly trying to get himself over and he, he's, he's the established Japanese authority and he's, and I'm not taking anything away from that, by the way, cause he has worked hard to, you know, familiarize and educate himself and his readers with what's going on in Japan. So I'm not taking a shot at him for that, but it's, it's, it's a pithy comment. What do you think of the, uh, the description here? Meltzer says there was no reaction at all to the two referees, an angle that had been built up on television. Medusa, who was fired just minutes earlier, came out with Rick Rude anyway. And after a coin flip, race was chosen to referee in the ring, Sasaki outside the ring. So this was the most screwed up match imaginable. The supposed top heel in the United States comes to ringside with a just turned baby face who had just been fired minutes earlier, but still there anyway, after being fired with no plausible explanation. I think that's a fair criticism. I mean, she just turned baby face and kicked Rick Rude's manager or whatever in the head, but yet she's still here with him. It's hard to wrap my head around. What do you think? Yeah, it, it, it was just a kaleidoscope of fucked up in this. It's just, it's just so many moving pieces of disaster going on in that decision. I, I can't make any sense of it whatsoever other than people just weren't paying attention to what they were doing what did stick out to me though is you have a match that's a draw 
the previous match. Then you have a pretty hot angle. Yep. And then you have a match that probably had very little real television buildup. I don't know. I, I would have to go back and look. But here again, you've got another Fakak to finish um, where you've got the, the referee, I think it was Pee Wee Anderson at this point, reversing his own decision. So you get two back-to-back kind of screwy finishes. And, and, and in this one in particular with Rude and Shono, and I'm a, you know, I was a huge fan of, of Rude's work and you know, had, have since become pretty good friends with Shono and appreciate his, his abilities, especially back then. Um, but all of the ref bumps and the, just the awkwardness and bumping Harley, it's just, ah, I don't know. For a guy that, you know, in Bill Watts, who was supposed to be this, you know, transitional guy that was going to come in and take WCW to a higher level and had all this supposed credibility and knowledge of the business and all the horseshit that, you know, everybody believed when Bill Watts came in to me, two back-to-back matches. And, and then again, you know, have the confusing mess that you have with Medusa, you know, getting fired and a minute later coming out with rude to me, I think it, it's pretty obvious that Bill Watts and, and all of his, you know, supposed credibility and knowledge of the wrestling business was nothing but an illusion because we saw it play out on this show and it was a fucking disaster. I mean, this is, you know, when Bill Watts came in, he, 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 he had every single opportunity he, he took to make fun of Kip Fry or make fun of Jim Hurd. This shit's just about as bad as anything Jim Hurd ever came up with. I mean, it's not Doink the Clown worthy or what, what was it? Not, not Doink the Clown. That Ding was the Ding dong worthy, right? I mean, I think that's probably the all time, you know, dumbest idea in the history of dumb ideas. Maybe that. And what was that big mummy looking motherfucker that I wrapped up in? The Yeti. The Yeti. Yeah, that might be right up there too. Um, but this was just, it was right up there. It was in the top three of just stupid shit. Meltzer would write, uh, Rude wasn't a baby face here. Neither was Chono. The only baby face was Ric Flair since the first five minutes consisted of we want Flair and Woo chants that the announcers couldn't acknowledge. Of course, famously, uh, Ric Flair's no longer here. He's now with the World Wrestling Federation. But whenever you see that big gold belt, fans can't help but think of Flair. And Meltzer would say that Chono was clearly way off his game because of his pinched nerve in his neck. And uh, he thought Rick Rude seemed disgusted. Maybe partly because this match wasn't over and the crowd is chanting for a guy who's not even there. And Meltzer would say to make matters worse, Jim Ross and Jesse Ventura blew the announcing here because they never explained and exclaimed when Poto, uh, when Chono easy for me to say, put on his various submission holds. So it seemed like it was all dead time and to make it even worse early in the match when Chono would use a submission, Ventura made the comment about how rude would never submit. And Ross, who I guess didn't want to disagree with him, agrees, which basically tells the viewers that all the submission moves are a waste of time because someone like Rude would never submit. And once it's established that the big stars aren't going to submit, you've killed the entire concept of submission holds. Not a great match. Um, it got negative three stars. Meltzer called it truly a disaster in every way. One of the worst world titles ever on pay-per-view. What'd you think? I don't know that I would go quite that far, but it would certainly be a, a candidate worth considering. It's, it was, it was really bad. Yeah. I mean, 
And maybe, you know, maybe Rude had a little bit of the same problem that Pillman had. Because even Rick, you know, he, he, he look, he went through the motions, but I don't think he was invested in this match. I don't think Chono was invested in this match. I think they were both. I don't think either one of them thought it was a good idea for this match to be laid out the way that it was. I don't think either one of them were happy with it. I think they were doing what they were told and they resented it. And I think that's reflected in the quality of the, the match. And the booking decision was just just about as bad as the match. Yeah, not good stuff. And we're on a roll now. We started with some good matches. Let's rewind now and just sort of remember where we started. The first match was the six-man, and it was a little weird, but we had Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, and Michael Hayes being cheered by the crowd. They lost. Kind of a screwy finish with two very talented guys, Rick Steamboat and Brian Pillman, but not a bad show so far. We both enjoyed the uh, the Vader bit. We both enjoyed the, the segment with Paul E and Medusa. But the tag match was not great. And now we've had a world title match that's not great, or the NWA title. But next up, we've got a world title. And, of course, everybody's excited that Ron Simmons is our champ, and he's going to come out with an entourage of about two dozen people, which Meltzer says might even actually work against him. It seems like he might be a heel. But they're trying to push that he's a legitimate athlete and Meltzer says unfortunately it's painfully obvious he's no world champion but even more obvious is that Barbarian is not a number one contender and he thinks that putting Barbarian as a number one contender here is almost an expose as to what Ron Simmons isn't which is a world champ this is not a great match either 12 minutes and 41 seconds of course Ron gets the win with a power slam and Meltzer would say it's one of the worst world title matches ever on pay-per-view, a quarter star. He thought the work was sloppy. The crowd was dead. It's uh, not great. What'd you think? Well, I, I, I hate to, but I'm going to agree with Dave. It wasn't great. I, I think just the chemistry wasn't there. And again, I'm not making excuses for Barbarian or for Ron Simmons, but I am guessing this match was laid out in such a way that even Ron wasn't happy with it. And I think Bill Watts, I was obviously a big fan of Ron Simmons and I'm not sure why Dave was putting so much heat on Ron. I mean, I thought Ron was a phenomenal world champion for his time in his time. I love Ron Simmons work. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I need to reevaluate the things that I enjoy or used to enjoy. Um, but you know, to put that much heat on Ron Simmons and call him, he's not a world champion and, and shit on him like that. I'm not sure I understand that. I also don't understand why, you know, Ron Simmons coming out with, with an entourage and security, much like we would see, you know, a, a world boxing champion do, you know, uh, or, or we see today in the UFC, you know, or we did with Bill Goldberg. So I think Dave's observation of boy, Ron Simmons coming out with an entourage could work against him and make him look like a heel. What the fuck? Maybe to you, Dave, but I think the rest of the world probably sees that a little bit different and looks at Ron Simmons or anybody else, Bill Goldberg or Conor McGregor or anybody else that comes out, you know, to, to do combat in whatever the sport du jour, you know, you happen to be watching, it makes them feel more important. It makes them feel larger than life. It makes them feel different than everybody else who doesn't come out with that entourage. So again, I think that's a reflection of Dave's just ignorance, not, not stupidity. I don't think Dave is stupid, but he is pretty ignorant when it comes to a business that he purportedly knows so much about. Um, 
But the match itself, yeah. Look, Barbarian has never been a guy that's going to go out there and have a great match or a a Dave Meltzer world, a four-star match. He's not that guy. Um, He's a big, powerful guy that had a pretty big reputation. He was more typical of the wrestling almost caricatures of the time. Um, So I understand why he was in there to challenge a guy like Ron Simmons because Ron was such a physical guy, and that's the way he was characterized and billed. But um, the match itself, like I said, I can understand on paper uh, why you might do this. Not so much having Barbarian challenge Ron Simmons for the world title. That makes no sense. Nobody took that seriously. And I'm guessing there was probably little or no story that made any sense leading up to this match, which makes it even worse. But yeah, it was the shits. Savewithconrad.com makes saving money fast and easy, but don't take my word for it. Just ask Brian in Topeka, Kansas. He left us a five-star review and wrote Conrad Thompson and his team helped me and my wife own a home. Thanks for helping us with the best decision of our lives. No, thank you, Brian, for trusting us with your single biggest investment. What about David over in Manassas Park, Virginia? He left us a five-star review and wrote, I'll be honest. I was hesitant at first to use a lender I'd never heard of before. However, Jimmy and Jennifer made the whole process easy and I got a great interest rate as well. In past experiences, I hated dealing with lenders because the whole process was always a mess and created nonstop headaches. Savewithconrad.com made the process streamlined and straightforward. I will recommend them to all my friends and family going forward. What about Veronica in Oakdale, California? She left us a five-star review and said, Derek is great. We had 20 years left on our mortgage. We took out some cash. We're still at 20 years and our payment only went up $80 and the interest rate is under 3%. Think about that. The cash you've been looking for, it's hiding in your house. Find out how much money you can save right now for free and how great our five-star service is at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. That's SaveWithConrad.com. And, and unbelievably, it gets better. Next up, there's an interview with Bruno Sammartino and Ron Simmons and Eric Watts. I guess the idea here is that Eric's going to get the rub from standing alongside the wrestling legend, Bruno Sammartino and the current world champion. But I think Meltzer says this gets a lot of heat with a lot of people that this Eric Watts push is out of control. I don't know why, but this tickled me that, Hey, let's get, uh, the biggest legend here and our world champion and stand them next to our son. Yeah, I felt bad for Eric here. I mean, Eric wasn't good on camera. I mean, he was new. He was green. He was he was he was a developmental talent for crying out loud. Is really what Eric Watts was, and he wasn't the most gifted athletically. He was awkward. You know, he, he I, I don't know why, but he was just awkward. He wasn't fluid, and he didn't have a good look. Super guy, and he worked hard at it, but. I think, look, it's one of the reasons why I didn't want my son Garrett to get into the wrestling business. I, for years, I talked him out of getting into the wrestling business because when your dad is the booker or was a booker promoter or somehow associated with the company that you're working for, it's double, it's triple baggage. You've got to work three times as hard. To, to really get established as a viable, legitimate member of the roster. 
um, because you're overcoming so much. You're overcoming resentment and animosity. Some of it stated, some of it not. Sometimes people keep their shit to themselves. Sometimes not. Either way, you still have to overcome it all. And for Bill to throw his son, now Bill had to know that his son wasn't that good. Look, when I, when I, when Garrett, my son, finally, you know, said, Dad, I'm, I really wanted to, this is my dream. This is the dream that I had growing up as a kid to work with you in the wrestling business. I, I want to at least try to fulfill that dream. And once I, once I did, I know I did my diligence. I tried to talk Garrett out of, you know, getting into the wrestling industry for a variety of reasons, but mostly because of his last name. He had the talent. Garrett had the talent. He's a physically he's a very gifted athlete, um, great-looking kid, and could cut a hell of a promo. You know, when I when I finally allowed him or positioned him to go out and actually, you know, reveal who he was, and I won't go into that whole storyline in TNA. But when Garrett finally revealed himself to be Garrett Bischoff and not Jackson James, a referee, which by the way we were able to keep quiet for a long time. Um, by then, Garrett was pretty capable of cutting a promo, but I would only let him do it under certain circumstances and with certain people. I, I didn't want to overexpose him until he'd had a year, year and a half, or two years under his belt and was really able to grow in terms of his ability to cut a promo. Bill Watts didn't do that. He stuck his kid out there completely unprepared, unqualified, and incapable of delivering anything on the mic that was worthy of the time it took. And I don't understand why you throw your kid out there to fail. He, Bill had to know. He had to know his kid was going to shit the bed. Why would you do that to your own son? Why would you put your son out there or, or, or your daughter? Why would you put anybody out there in a position where you're almost, almost 100% sure they're probably going to fail? I don't get it. It, was, it, it, was, it didn't do Eric any good. It, it hurt him more than it helped him. And it didn't do Ron Simmons any good. It's just, uh, whatever. I'll let it go. Well, missed, oppor missed opportunity. That's why I get angry over things like this. It was unfair to Eric and it was a missed opportunity. And just to do it because he's your son, I think was selfish, short-sighted. And another indication that Bill Watts was way overblown in terms of his real credibility and credentials to be in the position he was in. You know, we totally skipped the whole segment where they had the, uh, the wheel introduced Tony Schiavone looking svelte here, looking like wrestling's Rick Moranis and here comes, <laughs> and here comes uh, sting in uh, what looks like a gym or a She-Ra ladies jacket on, and they're going to spin the wheel. There's going to be this, uh, ominous looking wheel with all these different stipulations on it first blood match and things like that and he's gonna pull this oversized silly lever and there's these fancy little snake things with lit up eyes and man this wheel gets going and it stops and there's a light where i guess this is going to show us hey what was picked but it feels like it's half first blood half coal miner's glove and jesse ventura clarifies that for us that nope it's going to be a coal miner's glove match which i remember as a kid thinking what is that? And unfortunately we're going to find out <laughs> what, what, what do you think of this segment and, and how, I don't know, man, this feels like it's out of the book of bad ideas. It seems like a good idea on paper, but it's a little silly. what do you think? Horrible. 
horrible. I mean, I, I again, and I think the spin the wheel, make the deal thing. I think it was a Dusty Rhodes idea. I'm pretty sure. Could be wrong. Happy, happy to be corrected if anybody knows otherwise. And again, I get the idea. There's intrigue. But I, I even remember 92 going, oh, man, I just came out of the Team Challenge Series, and now I'm walking into this? This is just about as corny. It's just about as bad. I just – and maybe this is another reason, another example, another chink in my armor when it comes to gimmick matches. But I've seen so many of them end up so badly that – my natural reaction to any kind of a gimmick match is just, I don't want to see it. I don't want to be a part of it. It's a bad idea because so often, and again, here's going to be another case and I'll try not to stand on the soapbox too often or too long. There's no story. There's a story with Jake Robertson, snake. That's a gimmick. That's not a story. It's a gimmick. It's part of his character. Get that. But a cold miners glove match. I felt exactly 1992 the way you did. What the fuck is that? I've never even seen a coal. Do coal miners wear gloves? Surely. I mean, they work hard with their hands. They must wear gloves. But what makes it so interesting? No story, no buildup, just a gimmick match for the sake of a gimmick match. And then to make it even worse, that screwy wheel that they hadn't really probably practiced with all that much or rehearsed with all that much trying to get the stop exactly where they wanted it to stop. And if you go back and watch this, you'll see somebody, somebody was behind there going, okay, hit it now and stop it. And it, it didn't look natural. It looked, it just exposed the whole thing right from the very beginning. It was just overexposed. And it, uh, it, it bothered me to see Sting who I've, you know, watching so many great matches. Sting was one of those guys that could take any situation and make it good. He was a chicken salad king. Um, but even Sting had a hard time making sense out of this. And Jake, you know, Jake looked good. Jake, you know, I could see why. I remember DDP. It's all DDP ever talked about. It was Jake Roberts says, Jake Roberts said, Jake Roberts said. I thought, okay, Jake Roberts is pretty cool. I remember watching him in WWF and he was over. And, but I didn't appreciate Jake Roberts for his working ability to the extent that I really should have. And going back and watching this today, I saw glimpses of what I'm sure was, you know, Jake Roberts when he was at the peak of his career, which he wasn't here in this match. But I saw why, you know, DDP thought so highly of him in terms of his working and his psychology. I saw it here. And I think it's worthwhile to go back and watch this. Although, like I said, Jake wasn't at the peak of his career here. He was damn freaking good. And it really is interesting to go back and watch his psychology. But it wasn't enough to make this match interesting to me. I'd, the whole snake biting Jake in the face. This, eh, I don't know. It's just me, man. It's just my taste. <laughs> but it... <laughs> I don't know. I just, what's fun. I I know you don't usually have a chance to hear all the other podcasts we do, but man, when I first started, what happened when with Tony Schiavone, I thought, boy, this is just going to be the WCW version of something to wrestle. And then we did a, a horrific Steve Austin episode where literally for two hours, Tony says, I don't know. I don't recall the booking committee. I don't remember. So I'm like, okay, this isn't working. I got to come up with something else. So we did this show, Halloween Havoc, 1992, and I decided for the main event, we were going to let Tony do alternate commentary. 
And when he started to do play by play on Jake climbing the pole, like it is one of the funniest things. And I will always remember this match for that. And of course the silly snake biting Jake, and he's got to pretend that it's, but it's just horrible. And you've got, you know, one of the biggest heels in the entire business and sting arguably WCW's answer to Hulk Hogan here. This in theory should be tremendous, but good Lord, everything about it is horrible. It gets a quarter star cactus. Jack's going to come out with the snake bag. Of course it works against him and, uh, yeah, sting wins 10 minutes, 34 seconds. Meltzer says the finish made a bad main event even worse. And, uh, it's kind of fun because they have to explain that after Jake's been bitten by the snake, he's got to run backstage to the dressing room because they've got anti-venom back there. My God. This is just, it's a bad movie. And Meltzer would say, while Halloween Havoc wasn't the worst pay-per-view in history, it has to be among the worst. And he says bash of 91 was worse than Havoc of 92, but the company is coming out of Halloween Havoc 92 in its worst condition ever. I don't know that that's necessarily something that you can debate or argue. WCW is, uh headed down the tubes fast. Do you think this show was really like, I, we know that what the real nail in the coffin for Watts was, but this is the real beginning of the end here. Is it not? I don't know. I think if bill had bill not come out with the, the obviously racist commentary that evidently or not evidently, but eventually made its way to the public domain and to the offices of Turner broadcasting. Had he had he not done that, I, I think he would have been able to have another six months or a year before WCW would have finally went, okay, or Turner would have gone, okay, this guy doesn't have it either. Um, but clearly, this was a pretty good indication, I think. And I didn't talk to Bill Shaw. In fact, I, I had no contact with Bill Shaw during this period of time, again, because I didn't report to him at that point. Bill was way, way up the the food chain for me. Um, and I didn't get to know bill or talk to bill about business until after Watts was fired. But even bill who is, he was a vice president of human resources for Turner broadcasting. He wasn't a television guy. He wasn't certainly not a wrestling guy, but anybody could look at the numbers, look at the effects and look at the quality of a match like, or quality of a pay-per-view like this and go, okay, this, this, we bought a bill of goods. We bought another bill of goods and bill Watts. I don't, he might've, he might've, he might've survived another year had it not been for the stupid shit that he said. Really not a great show. The uh, readers of the wrestling observer thought the best match was Brian Pillman and Ricky steamboat. And that the worst match just barely was Rick rude. Masahiro Chono uh, close second. There was Ron Simmons and barbarian. What'd you think, Eric? What was the best match? What was the worst match in your opinion? I. I think as far as a match goes, I'd give it to the opener, the six man, as far as a match. I, there was no story. I didn't like the finish. There was forget about all the things that were wrong with it. Just looking at the in-ring presentation of it and the action that took place in the ring and some of the psychology, excluding, of course, the finish. Um, 
I like that match the best. I think I was too disappointed in Pillman and Steamboat because my expectations were too high. And that's partly my fault. But I think because of that, I would, I'd have to go with the opener six man in terms of quality of match. By the way, the following year, Halloween Havoc was badass. We had Sting and Sid Vicious. We had the Nasty Boys taking on Bagwell and Scorpio. Dustin working with Steve Austin. Regal working with Davey Boy. Orndorff with Steamboat. But then I guess your co-main event, uh, Rude and Flair for the international title. Invader Cactus Jack in a Texas death match that's just out of this world. So thankfully, we pulled the nose up on Halloween Havoc after a great showing in 89, a really solid showing in 90, but really some less than awesome havocs in 91, 92, 93 is going to be great. And next week is going to be great because we're covering, believe it or not, it's time Halloween havoc, 1993. I'm really, really fired up about that show. One of my all time favorite Halloween havocs. We're going to cover it next week here, but before we get out of here this week, we've got a bunch of questions for Halloween havoc 92 for you, Eric. There's no way we can get to them all. Let's try to fit in as many as we can sort of rapid fire. Late to the Nitro Party wants to know, we know Eric isn't big on gimmick matches, but if he had to pick another match from spin the wheel, make the deal to be the main event, what would he pick? Oh God, I don't know what matches were on it. I can't answer that one. Do you have a favorite gimmick match though? No. Uh, No, I mean, look, I, I love a good cage match. If there's a reason for it and there's a story and there's a build and it makes sense. Give me a cage match. Two guys, no ref, no bullshit. You can only get out if you climb off through the top in a tuxedo and then take your tuxedo off and put on a bathing suit before you hit the floor. I mean, whatever. I mean, don't gimmick up a gimmick match. But if you build if you if you build a good story, and the only way that Eric and Conrad can settle their difference is two men come out or two men go in and only one comes out. I'll buy that if you if you take me on that journey. But if you're just going to throw a cage match up there for no reason and you're going to gimmick up a gimmick match, eh, not interested. So I'd say just a good old-fashioned, logical, good build cage match would be my favorite. Let's finish 2020 with a high note. Let's skip our next two house payments at SaveWithConrad.com. That's going to give you the extra cash you need this holiday season. We're going to start 2021 with a better interest rate, a lower monthly payment, and no credit card debt. It sounds too good to be true, but we can do it for you right now, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket at SaveWithConrad.com. We routinely help our podcast listeners save 60, 70, 80, even $100,000 worth of unnecessary interest. But how much can you save? Find out right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lending. That's SaveWithConrad.com. Ben wants to know, wrestling fans all know about you, Bill Watts, and Jim Hurd, but we don't often hear much about Kip Fry, who was either in charge of WCW around this time or had just left. Can you tell us anything about Kip personally or professionally? I've always been curious to learn more. Yeah, Kip gets a bad rap. He was a good dude. I mean, he, he was an entertainment attorney at Turner Broadcasting. And when Jim Hurd was fired, they had, they meaning Turner Broadcasting had to put somebody in charge of WCW. They couldn't just let it run itself. Uh, although it, <laughs> to a degree, it probably did under Bill Watts's regime. Um, but 
they had to put somebody in there administratively. And and I think they looked at, at Kip Fry, who had done some pretty successful things at Turner Broadcasting, had negotiated some pretty successful television deals at, at Turner. And they probably at that point were going, you know what, we need a we need somebody that understands you know, entertainment, preferably a lawyer, because WCW was having so many legal issues at that point. And let's put Kip Fry in there as an interim until we find a, a longer-term solution. And Kip, I'm guessing, knew he was in there as a temporary f- fit. I don't think Kip Fry was under the impression that he was going to run WCW long-term. But Kip came in and com- completely open-minded realized some of the problems that existed, dealt with them as head on as he had the ability to to deal with at the time because he was learning on the job. You don't go from being an entertainment attorney negotiating television contracts to running a wrestling, a dysfunctional wrestling company at that uh, that was already off the rails when you got it. Um, <clears throat> Kip did his best. You know, Kip would often have, and Tony could tell you this more than I could because I was still you know third string announcer at that time. But, you know, Kip had a, a, a log home, you know, outside of Atlanta. And he would take the creative team, the writers and Tony and Dusty and whomever was on that team, and they would go out to Kip's, you know, on a Friday or whatever day it was. And they would spend all day, you know, kind of a retreat to get out of the office. So, you know, I, I Kip gets a lot of heat that he doesn't deserve. Um, but he, he tried, you know, and he, he came in with an open mind and, and reached out to a lot of people and tried to solve a lot of the issues that the talent was having. And, um, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for what Kip tried to do. Let's do three more interesting ones. Then we'll wrap this one up. I do want to mention, uh, we had to do a best of a few weeks ago and, uh, we've still got our notes and we're ready to do TNA bound for glory 2010. So that's going to be coming your way as a bonus show later this month over at adfreeshows.com. And Eric, believe it or not, I've got several clips ready for another episode of Eric fires back. So anytime you wake up feeling particularly ornery, send me a text and, uh, we'll let you rip some shit to death here on adfreeshows.com. Well, let's, uh, let's plan on doing that Wednesday or Thursday at your convenience. Cause I'm, I'm kind of chomping it. I got a little angry up in the mountains, you know, getting cold and hungry and tromping around up there. It brings out the animal in me. You know, I feel a little more like a caveman than I did before I went up there. So I'm probably in the right frame of mind for a show like that. So I'll, I'll be open Wednesday or Thursday. You choose. So coming up later this week, Eric fires back another edition. Let's do these three questions. Then we'll get out of here and get ready for next week's episode. Halloween havoc 93. And I hope you watch that one this week, boys and girls. What a great show. Uh, Ray has an interesting theory. If not Harley race, would Paul Heyman have better, a better option for big van Vader in WCW? Yes, but no. Yes, as a, yes, as a television character and as a spokesperson for Vader, much better, much better. But Harley's value in the equation wasn't so much his on-camera abilities as it was Vader was scared to death of Harley. Harley was one of the few people that Vader was afraid of. Right. And therefore... Harley was one of the few people that could actually manage Vader literally not, not as a television character manage, but I mean, literally manage Vader. 
like making sure he got on his flight, mm. you know, making sure he didn't fuck up, make sure he got to the building on time. All the little things that can go wrong when you've got a talent that's hard to manage. Uh, Harley was really good at that. And, and it was because of the respect, I wouldn't say fear, but the respect that Vader had for Harley made Harley the right person for that job. Vader would have squashed Heyman like a gnat at the first, at the first conflict. He, he, that wouldn't have worked. Mick Foley's missing teeth wants to know of the three guys in the first match, Gunn, Zinc, and Douglas, who do you think missed their ceiling by the most in your opinion? Uh, all three had potential. That's an interesting question though. Who do you think was, uh, maybe the biggest miss of the three? Cause it felt like at one point, each of those guys was going to be a really big deal. No, I never, I never thought much of zinc. I, I thought he, he peaked way early. Um, uh, gun. I didn't know enough of, didn't watch him enough to have an impression. I would say definitely Douglas. I, I, I think Shane Douglas could have circumstances, timing, maybe some personal choices that, that could have gone another way, you know, early in his career. Um, but I think Douglas probably had more real ability, uh, than, he, than either of the other two. Timing is everything, you know, I mean, anybody who's had a, a great level of success in their life would have to eventually come to that conclusion that timing is a huge factor and probably the biggest factor maybe for Shane Douglas. Last one, Arturo wants to know. Eric, what's your favorite coal miners glove match? <laughs> There's none. There isn't one. Yeah. This was just, uh, not a great show, but you know, that's sort of what's fun about this podcast is we get to go back and look at, you know, the stuff when you were in charge and the stuff when you weren't in charge. And we look at some great shows and some not so great shows. It's like that old famous literature, right? It's, uh, the best of times, the worst of times next week. It's one of the best of times. I love Halloween Havoc. I love Halloween Havoc 93. Excited to break it down with you next week. Guys, watch it on the WWE Network this week. And uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter. He is at E. Bischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. We are at 83 Weeks. And we're doing a lot. And I mean a lot of fun stuff, including our own little Halloween Havoc. We're calling it Hallow's Eve Havoc. And it's happening on October 30th over at adfreeshows.com. Eric, have you seen all the new content we're cranking out that we've started to announce this week on AdFree? I know you were in the mountains, but since you've been gone, we've announced that Medusa is doing a happy hour twice a month over at AdFree shows on a Sunday. And, uh, Gerald Briscoe is going to be doing mailbag Monday. You get to pick his brain from 30 plus years with WWE. There's so much fun stuff that we've announced, but maybe my favorite one so far is that we're going to be doing a little sit down interview every week with Dr. Tom Pritchard, where we watch an old classic wrestling match and we're calling it x-ray with Dr. Tom. The idea being we all have favorite matches, but why was it our favorite? Well, he's going to break it down. X's and O's style, the mechanics of a match, the psychology of a match, much like John Gruden did with quarterbacks on ESPN for years and years for the NFL, but seeing wrestling through a wrestler's eyes. The most prolific trainer, maybe ever the guy who trained the rock, the guy who trained Kurt angle, the guy who trained Vince McMahon fans are going to get to see wrestling. Like they've never seen it. And it's all happening at adfreeshows.com. What are you most excited about that? We've rolled out so far, Eric. I think I'm most looking forward to, to Tom Pritchard's show. 
you know, we, and you've heard me, you know, beat this to death on my show. Why? Why am I interested in this match? Why am I not interested in this match? You know, this came up with retribution, you know, and when I got mouthy about, you know, somebody asked me a question. It was a simple question. How do you like that storyline? And my response was it sucked. Not because of the talent. had nothing to do with the talent because there was no answer as to why. Why is, why is retribution here? Why do they want to, you know, tear the company down? Just answer one simple question, why? And I think that question, why do, you, why do I like a promo? Why do I like a specific match? Why do I like a, a storyline? I think if you can start looking at this, this product and, and keep going back to that question, why, you'll end up eventually producing a much better product. And I think Tom's perspective is so unique and qualified as you just pointed out that I'm, I'm anxious to hear, you know, from a wrestling, from a wrestler's perspective, but more importantly, in Tom's case, a wrestling trainer's perspective, you know, why a match is a good match in, in terms of its presentation and what elements, you know, breaking matches down and really, you know, breaking down, pinpointing, you know, moments in the match where there are transitions and, and you see the psychology and all of that. I just, I think that's going to be fascinating. So I'm looking forward to that myself. It's going to be a good time. And Oh, by the way, you're also going to get video versions of our podcast. So if you want to see Eric and I on camera hooting and hollering at each other and Eric flipping out, it's going to be fun over at adfreeshows.com. <laughs> so much fun stuff still to come. Check it out over at adfreeshows.com. Uh, until next time, he is Eddie Bischoff. I am a, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here for Halloween Havoc 93. Of course, it's 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Hey, you love the show, right? We'll show off that love with a shirt from ericbischoff.com or get your gimmick at boxagimmicks.com, the official store of 83 weeks. Posters, hats, tumblers, accessories, and more. Boxagimmicks.com. Okay. Stop what you're doing. Listen very, very carefully. The most hated jeweler in America is excited to introduce you to someone very special. Oh, she's beautiful, classy. She's brilliant. She will dazzle you. People just can't stop staring at her. Meet Krista. And she's easy. Wait, what? Krista is Steven Singer's most loved engagement ring, and it takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye-flawless, near-colorless, high-quality, round, brilliant-cut diamond, expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting that will withstand the test of time. Krista's available. She's ready for love, and she's ready to meet you. Steven Singer isn't in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. This magnificent full one-carat round brilliant diamond is only $3,198. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Plus, free shipping, and get this, 12 months interest-free financing. Steven's showroom is open by appointment only, or you can go to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista Ready for Love engagement ring. Steven Singer Jewelers. Real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. 
hey Patrick, if you don't mind, would it be okay if I recorded this conversation? Yeah, no problem. Awesome. I'd love to be able to use our conversation for all of Conrad's podcasts. I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. Awesome. Okay, so what made you come to Save With Conrad in the first place? The time just seemed right. Me and my wife just had a baby and we were looking to trim some costs and it seemed like a good time to pull the trigger and see the very least you know what we could get from from conrad to better our you know monthly rate and just to save a little bit of money was there something specific that he said that really made you want to take that step every time on the podcast ads when he said hey skip your next two house payments i'm going well that just sounds perfect i can build up the two months that that always seemed appealing, and this time it had me sold. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to turn away the chance at saving money. Now, at, through the whole process and everything that you just shared with me, um, was there anything that we could improve, maybe um, do better in the future? I'm, I'll, I'll be honest with you, like, just in terms of anything I could, you know, say, improve, I mean, that one I can't really think of, because all the things that I just said were positive, that's the thing that a lot of other companies don't necessarily always have. Um, how much money was Save With Conrad able to save you guys? At the very least, um, it dropped my rate by an entire point, uh, percentage point, and we save about, you know, a little over $100 or so a month, if not just right at. If you could tell any of our listeners anything about Say With Conrad or encourage them, what would you tell them? I would say um, take advantage of the ad. It, you know, everything that is said that you hear on those ads is true. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.